Hey there, podcast listener. Chris Roseborough here right at the front of the podcast. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. If you don't already support us financially, we truly can use your help. So get on your computer. Go on over to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons and support us. And, of course, if you would like to do it the traditional way, make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your financial support because we truly can't do what we're doing here without it. All right, on to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, December 20th, 2012. Christmas is just around the corner. Weird things today. Uh, looking at the list going... I, yeah, this is another one of those ones. I don't think there's a theme. Kind of like whatever theological scraps are lying on the floor at the end of the long stretch of the Christmas season. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. Have you all heard of... Um, you know, some of these televangelists, they talk about generational curses. Have you heard these things? Uh, you know, there, there's people out there, I mean, like Paula White and others, you know, they're out there. You have to take authority, and you got to break generational curses. Well, that's what we're going to talk about second half of the first hour today. We're In fact, today we're going to start part one of a part of a two-part uh, series in debunking Paula White's false teaching regarding... Uh, breaking generational curses. I, if you've ever heard this language uh, before, um, after listening to a full-blown teaching by Paula White on this thing, I, now I've heard it over the years, people talking about, you need to break generational curses, and I take authority, and I break and bind and bash and bip that curse and whatever in the name of Jesus. And, you know, it's when you look at the the biblical teaching that underline, underlies that, it is so ridiculous. Um, yeah, the, now, listen, those of you who are new to listening to, uh, to Fighting for the Faith, I got a, a slew of emails complaining about the Holy Ghost hokey pokey. Uh, we played the whole uh, Max Holiday Marty Python sketch on the Holy Ghost hokey pokey. Now, that's something that we've been featuring here for a couple of years. Think of what we're going to listen to uh, today with uh, Paula White. This is the doctrinal version of the of the Holy Ghost hokey pokey. You know, she sticks her foot in and then her mouth in and you know and then sticks her foot in her mouth and does shakes it all about and things like that. But yeah, it's like like I said, as soon as you take a look at what's going on, you realize there is a whole lot of crazy jumps that she takes that you just can't take if you're a careful exegete of God's word. So that's what we're going to be doing in like the second half of the uh, first hour today. In fact, why don't we just talk about what we're going to do? We've got a, a Patricia King segment, our last Patricia King segment of the year. Oh, huzzah. 
<laughs> you know, I, I, by the way, I I will be off all next week, and uh, we will be officially back. I think on January second. So taking a little more than a week off, and because the, the holiday falls kind of at a weird time. But um, I got family in town. My my son-in-law, my my daughter, my grandson are in town for the holiday, and we are just looking forward to vegging as a family and enjoying uh, uh you know enjoying our christmas together my, my in fact my, i think my parents are flying in from uh from southern california yeah so see that proves to you folks uh those of you out there who are accusing me of living in my mother's basement my mom lives in california so there that's all i got to say <laughs> but uh yeah so we're we're just going to have a fantastic family christmas just enjoy the time in fact i think tonight we're supposed to get snow here in central indiana and I, it, it's, it's, this is going to sound ridiculous, but I am so looking forward to the snow. I, it's like um, I have been looking with jealousy at those of you in other parts of the United States, you know, as you've been getting snowstorms. And I, and literally, you know, the other night I was praying, and I, and I, it was kind of like one of those whiner prayers. It's like, God, how come we don't have any snow? I want some snow, and I really miss the snow. <laughs> and so God answered my whiner. Uh, prayer and uh, we got snow tonight. And I'm very excited about that. So, okay, let's talk about what we're going to do here. So we got the uh, Patricia King segment coming up. Um, Brian Houston apparently is going to be speaking at Saddleback Church before the year is over. While we're do- you know while we're on vacation, Brian Houston is going to be uh, one of the featured speakers at Saddleback. I think that's the date. If I got the dates right, uh, we'll take a look at that story. Yeah, Brian Houston, uh, Hillsong. Word of Faith Heretic, uh, he's another one of these guys who preaches the prosperity gospel. Blatant about it, too. And so he's going to be over at Saddleback um, very soon. Uh, Tim Challies, who, boy, y- y'all have got to see this. Tim Challies has written a review of James McDonald's book, Vertical Church. And i got to tell you, you know, Challies, uh, he's usually a pretty measured guy um, and not one that is very harsh in his criticism but whoo he took off the gloves and just went for it i mean yeah he gave us some positive things about the book but uh for the most part it's an extremely negative review of james mcdonald's book vertical church and he did a fantastic job i'm going to share part of that with you not the whole thing and then like like i promised at the top of the program we're going to be taking taking a look at paula white's false teaching regarding generational curses this will be part one today. We're going to do part two tomorrow. And then for our sermon review in hour number two, we are going to head down to Florida. We've been spending some time in Minnesota uh, this week in our sermon reviews and uh, decided to head down south. And we're going to be uh, going to uh, Church by the Glade, CB Glades. They have a, a sermon series they've been doing called uh, Purple Christmas. I have no idea what purple has to do with Christmas or why that's innovative or creative, but... Um, Normally, David Hughes is the person that we're listening to uh, delivering the sermons, but uh, they had one of their u- their youths, uh, their youths, young uh, pastor upstarts, and boy, this guy, I got to tell you, he, I can tell you, he is, he's got like Stephen Furtick chops. I mean, he's going to be the next big heretic. I'm telling you, he's going to, he's going to plant a church somewhere and he's going to do a leadership team. And this guy is going to twist God's word in Narsajit. As good, if not better, than uh, than Stephen Furtick. Uh, no joke. And, yeah, this is my prediction. But again, but then again, keep this in mind. I have like zero prophetic skills. 
I flunked my ESP class in, in college. I have – in fact, when I prophesy things, it never happens. So, <laughs> you know, I, I have to base this all upon what I just consider to be logical – guesses based upon connecting particular dots and trends and things like that i'm highly dependent on logic so but i'm telling you this kid's going to be uh, this kid's going to be way up there in the seeker driven church and uh, a major heretic in the making i mean he's got narcissism down to a t it's unbelievable but his name is Corey castle and uh, k o r y c a s s e l l Cassell, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but anyway. So we're going to be listening to his sermon entitled "More Than Almost." More than almost. And if you want to get your Bible ready now, he, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter five, the story of the paralytic being lowered through the roof. There, yeah. I mean, you'd think that story would be about Jesus, right? You know, <laughs> what's really funny is that, uh, you know, I taught I, I taught the Mark's account of this same story uh, just this past Sunday in church. And so, um, you know, in my class. But, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's... Anyway, we got lots of things to look forward to. I think you're going to enjoy today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. There are some strange things that you are about to hear, so I, I feel... It, you know, deep down in my heart that I, I must warn everybody listening to this edition of Fighting for the Faith. There's some really strange things that you're going to hear here. So um, I better play our warning. Warning. Fighting for the faith can be dangerous to your health. Listening with caution is strongly urged while doing any of the following activities. Operating heavy, deadly equipment, playing Farmville, or any time-wasting, brain-numbing activity. For sudden awakening at the sound of a particularly stupid isogetical statement could cause neck strain. Drinking liquids, drinking hot liquids, having liquids too nearby, not having any liquids nearby. The following medical conditions have been known to occur while listening to Fighting for the Faith. Cranial keyboard embedment syndrome, sinu-nasal liquid spewment disorder, steering wheel pounding clenched fist strain, continual gaping dry mouthitosis, and frustrative disbelief brain explosion. Please take proper precautions. Drinking straws, padding, and duct tape are recommended. Have you ever spent time pondering God's love and how God loves you so much that he just wants to bring you increase? Well, <laughs> that's apparently what Patricia King is going to try to make the case for in uh, today's um, Patricia King Gang update. And by the way, the name of this video, you can find it at xpmedia.com, is entitled Love That Brings Increase. Now, before we get into this particular video, I would like to warn you that um, just because you found a Bible verse that says the word increase doesn't mean that God in that Bible verse is necessarily talking about financial increase, okay? You think these things are pretty straightforward. I mean, all you got to do is pay attention to the three primary rules for sound biblical um, exegesis or interpretation, and they are this, context, context, and context. In fact, if you want to go ahead and go now, to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 11. This is where uh, Patricia King is going to have us meditate. And that, that's what she says. We're, we're going we're to meditate on this particular verse. The problem is, is that in that verse, the word increase does appear. But um, Patricia King, in, well, typical fashion for her, doesn't really ever pay attention to the context of a particular passage. And so she thinks that because the word increase appears there in this verse, that this somehow is a promise because God loves you so much that he wants to increase you. And, you know, financially and other ways, 
but that's not what's going on in this passage at all. Here's Patricia King to explain. Hi, for today's devotion, I want to speak on the subject of God's love that brings increase. And recently, I was just meditating about how patient God is. And Yeah, doubly so with you. Yeah, he's very patient, expecting you and hoping that you will repent of your false teaching, your false doctrine, your false visions, your false dreams, your false glory, all that kind of stuff. So, yes, I agree with you. God is really, really patient. Really see this when you read through the Old Testament and you see this loving, loving God who loves his people so much and yet had to put up with so much. And his patience was amazing. You know, it says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love is patient. But um, in Deuteronomy 1.11, the whole book of Deuteronomy actually is one of my favorite books because it it, it shows you how really... <laughs> The book of De- the whole book of Deuteronomy is one of your favorite books. That's not normally something I hear people say because generally the book of Deuteronomy is you know it's you know it's the second reading of the law of Moses and there's a lot of details regarding what you shall not do, what you shall do, and when you don't do what you shall do or you do what you shall not do, what you have to do in order to get that taken care of. I mean, there's there's a lot of pretty precise. Um, well, commandments, especially pertaining to, you know, sacrifices and things like that. You know, Deuteronomy is kind of a bloody book in that sense. You know, it, it lays out for us just what a mess our sin is and what it takes to have our sin forgiven, pardoned, and redeemed. Okay, well, let's continue. God was preparing his people to go into the promised land so that they could take the land, possess it, occupy it, and rule it. Yeah. And I think... God, you were so gracious because here this people was in the wilderness. They rebelled against you. They were obstinate, hard-hearted. Yeah, and every one of them that were they, that were adults with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, they died in the wilderness. Yeah, God was really patient. He was patient enough to wait for them all to crump. Uh, disobedient, and yet you loved them. And in Deuteronomy 1.11... Uh, Moses prayed, may the Lord, the God of your fathers, increase you a thousandfold more than you are. Yeah, see, the, here's the deal. Well, somebody like Patricia King, she sees a word like increase in the Bible. She goes, cha-ching! Oh, it's money, it's increase. Oh, God wants to, oh, oh, oh shower blessings upon you. Ka-ching! She hears the cash register drawer ring, or she hears somebody, you know, somebody's debit card being, you know, swiped so that it can go into her account. That's what she's thinking. Yeah, but we're going to take a look at this passage, by the way, because it's rather embarrassing. Once you take a look at the context, whew, she missed some pretty important details. But let's let her spin this out just a little bit more. And bless you, just as he has promised. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, a lot of times, and you might be able to relate to this too, that, that when someone mistreats you or they slight you a bit, the last thing that you want to do is bless them. Like you might put up with them, yeah. but you don't want to increase them in blessing. If anything, sometimes you desire, oh, okay, you'll get yours. Have, have you ever had that rise up on the inside of you? Accepting God is love and love just doesn't respond like that. So here's God putting up with these people for 40 years. They're getting ready to go into the promised land now, but they've rebelled against him, been cruel to him, disobeyed him, mistreated him the whole time in the wilderness. And now Moses, who's carrying really the heart of God, he's saying, I'm praying that God is going to bless you, multiply and increase you a thousandfold more than you are right now. Uh, Okay. 
let me review again our three primary rules for sound biblical exegesis. They are context, context, and context. So if you got your Bible, flip on over to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Uh, no, sorry, chapter 1. She read verse 11 out of context, which says, May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you. Okay. Now, so we got in her translation, she saw the word increase. Okay. But what's going on in this passage? Is this, you know, the way she described it, you know, there's God, you know, that patient, kind, slow to anger God, which he is, by the way, all of those things. And if you don't believe me, just think about the fact that you're still breathing right now. And God is, you know, despite all of your sin, God is being merciful and patient with you and forgiving with you. So God truly is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Or as the psalmist said, if you, O Lord, kept a record of wrongs, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Now, is that what this passage is about? Yeah, no, it really isn't. So what we're going to do, we're going to apply our three rules, context, 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 and take a look at what's going on here. Verse one. So we're going to we're going to read 10 verses ahead of verse 11 to see what's going on. Okay, so these are the words that Moses spoke to all of Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness in the Arabah opposite Suf between Paran and Tafel, Laban, Hazaroth and Dizahab. It's it is 11. It is an 11 day journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord God had given him in uh, in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth, in Endre, beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, quote, uh, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country, in the lowland, and in the Negev, by the seacoast and the land of the Canaanites, and Lebanon, as far as the great uh, river, the great river Euphrates. See, I have set, uh, set the land before you. Go and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. Okay, stop. Now that's just like the introduction. One of the things you should note when you read a section like this is that there are a bunch of liberals out there who like to say that, oh, you know, the Bible is just full of mythology. Okay, now mythology generally begins with something like this, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That's mythology. Okay, mythology takes place in the foggy past. You're not exactly sure where it occurred. You know, it it, it happened once upon a time. Okay, but notice all the details here that you, that Moses has, gives us right there at the beginning of Deuteronomy. This is not the way somebody who's writing mythology talks. Okay, and you'll notice that there's a parallel to this in the New Testament. You look at say like even the story of the birth of Christ, the nativity. You know where uh, Luke takes time to explain to us. You know that uh, during the reign of Tiberius, you know the census that took place under this guy and all that kind of stuff, right? This the, the, that's no way to talk about you know, mythology. All of this is history. Okay, history. This all these things took place at specific days, at specific times, specific years ago, and things like that. This is not this is not mythology. 
Okay, now I read all of that to kind of so that we can get our bearings in this text. So now we read verse 9. At that time, I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. Okay, this is Moses now talking to the people of Israel. At that time, I, Moses, said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout the tribes. I charged uh, charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers, and judge rightly between a man and his brother, or the alien who is with him. Now, you'll notice what's going on here. Notice that all of this is written in the past tense. Moses is reminding them of a past in their previous history and of a prayer that he prayed. You know, yes, may the Lord multiply you, but all of this was part of a narrative to explain explain to the people, not, oh, you know, you guys have spit in God's face and you've been nothing but grumblers and complainers, but I'm going to pray that God increases you. It's not what's going on at all here. He's recounting to them a historical event in their recent past that they all should remember uh, when basically the the job of leading and governing these people became too great for uh, Moses to do all by himself. So what did he do? He he distributed the load and created different levels of strata of, of you can think of it as government, if you would. People who would govern the people, you know, all the way down to particular numbers of people so that the load then wouldn't be all on him, but would be shared among elders and people who have the authority to do these things. That's what's going on in this text. But the way Patricia King describes it, oh, yeah, here are the children of Israel. They've been nothing but glumblers and complainers, but their Moses just prays regarding the love that brings increase. <laughs> yeah, um... Yeah, she needs to be, uh, well, she shouldn't be an exegete because, well, she's not qualified to be an exegete. But if she were qualified, the first thing she would need to do is um, pay a lot closer attention to the context of the passages that she quotes in order to make sure that she's rightly handling God's word. But she doesn't do that. So now we've got her waxing eloquent about the love that brings increase. And yet if when you read the passage in context, just because the word increase appears in a particular translation, she's all excited about it. And now her cash register is going off thinking that, oh, God's love just wants to bring you increase. We continue. And so I want to focus on that today, that... We would ponder, meditate on, give you something to meditate on. Yeah, okay. The goodness of God's love, that he would multiply you in every good thing. Um, was this prayer by Moses regarding increasing the people of Israel, was that prayed about me? Yeah, no, I don't think so. So let's bring this to a personal place. Oh, please, yes. Look at your life right now. Okay, hang on. All right, yeah, um... What do you want me to look at? Are there areas in your life where you have missed it in God that... (laughs) Yeah, like 
Big time. Daily. It happens all the time. You have, that's why, in fact, that's the reason why when I pray the Lord's Prayer on a daily basis, forgive us our trespasses, <laughs> there isn't a day that goes by that that doesn't, why I don't need to ask God to forgive me for something I've done wrong. Okay. Disobeyed him or yeah. haven't believed him or mm-hmm. didn't focus on him or give him the attention that he deserves or... Maybe you've been out and out rebellious against him at times. It's like you're reading into my mind. Can you think of times in your life that are like that? Of course, because I'm a human being just like you. Your life is like this too, Patricia, because you're a sinner just like I am. God's heart heart towards you is, I want to increase you. Uh... Yeah, um, not exactly. And multiply you in every good thing. In fact, I want to multiply you even a thousandfold more than you are right now. And yeah, but see, the problem is, is that you ripped the verse out of context, and this wasn't a prayer about multiplying me or anything like that. This was not some kind of universal thing that applies to Christians everywhere. Yeah, man. Every good thing. Wow. Yeah, wow is right. Wow, like... Do you even know how to pay attention to basic biblical hermeneutics so that you don't twist God's word and mangle it and make it say things it doesn't say? Wow, for sure. Now that is a meditation. (laughs) Yeah, not unless you're deceived. I want you to ponder that all day long. No, I won't. I promise I won't. I'm going to forget this as soon as I'm done talking about it. God wants to multiply you. No, he doesn't. That verse doesn't say that. A thousand-fold increase. Oh, come on. Seriously, what would the world do with a thousand of me? Every good thing. And bless you, just as he has promised, no matter what you've done in the past. Yeah, how is it that you're, like, skipping over the cross? I mean, seriously. I mean, can you imagine some pagan listening to this going, oh, wow, God wants to increase me. Yeah, what they need to hear is that they need to repent and be forgiven. No matter how you've responded to him or not responded to him, he wants to bless you because he is love. That's what love is like. Yeah, your God is like a senile old grandpa who's got butterscotch in his pocket who just goes around patting his children on their head going, Oh, you're so good. I love you anyway. Here's a butterscotch. Enjoy it. I want you to drink today of the goodness of God. (laughs) What? The goodness of his love towards you. And what that means, multiply blessing because he loves you so much. Now, drink that in for yourself. Yeah, I'm going to spit that out of my mouth. And then ask him, hmm, because you're so good to me, God, how can I show this increase of love to others? Yeah, by warning everybody about this false teaching of yours. That's the way I tell people about God's love. How can I increase blessing to others who have been cruel to me? who have not been kind to me, how can I be more like you? Because... (laughs) Do you know how to read? Have you passed basic reading comprehension tests? Isn't that what it's all about, to be more like him? Boy, she sounds so pious when she says it like that, doesn't she? Well, if we're going to be more like him, we have to learn to love. And if we're going to learn to love, it means, first of all, receiving his love for us, First of all, it means like handling his word properly. Which is receiving the multiplication of his blessing and being willing to act just like him. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, see, that's my problem. I don't. That's why I need the shed blood of Christ to forgive me of my sins. With others. Why don't you do that today? This is like her kindergarten teacher voice. It's like creeping me out. Yeah! 
Okay, enough. Okay, <laughs> hang on. I got I got to do a little bit of purging here before I go to the break. Otherwise, my mind is going to freak out during the the commercial break. Okay, from the uh, ChristianResearchNetwork.org website, uh, headline reads: Brian Houston of Australia's Word Faith Hillsong Church to speak at Saddleback. Now, okay, can I ask like the obvious question? Remember Rick Warren's interview with John Piper? Okay, Rick Warren let us all know that he was a monarchist. Okay, during that interview. Okay, so I mean, so here's my question: somebody who is a monarchist, and according to him, he was very pleased to let John Piper know that he had recently read the entire works of Jonathan Edwards. Now. Okay, just <laughs> work with me for a second here. Why would somebody who is a Jonathan Edwards fan and a monarchist invite prosperity heretic Brian Houston to speak at his church? Um, this <laughs> I could think of like, oh, probably about a half a dozen or more biblical passages that say that he shouldn't be doing this. Okay, in fact, he shouldn't ha- have any fellowship with Brian Houston. He should be rebuking him and warning his flock about his false teaching. But anyway, I read from uh, Christian Research Network. Uh, This is an article written by Aaron Benziger. Here's what it says. In his most recent email newsletter, Rick Warren has announced that famed preacher, I'd like to add to that some more descriptive, fame, word of faith, heretic, prosperity, heretic, preacher, Brian Houston of Hillsong Church in Australia will be speaking at Warren's Saddleback Church on December 29th and 30th, says Warren, quote, I'm so excited to announce that Pastor Brian Houston of the world famous, uh, I'm sorry, infamous, I just, I'm just doing a little editing here, world infamous Hillsong Church in Sydney, Australia, will be speaking at Saddleback. Brian is flying over from Australia just to speak that weekend. Many of your favorite worship songs like Shout to the Lord came out of Hillsong. I'll see you at this incredible end of the year service. Huzzah. Why do I feel like the first week uh, that I'm going to be back, it's going to be like a, a week packed with Rick Warren stuff because he's going to be doing Oprah's Life class, which, by the way, he pre-recorded, so I already know what he said and what happened. We we got that to deal with. We'll have footage of uh, Brian Houston's heresy being preached at Saddleback. <clears throat> Weird that somebody like who's a, you know, a fan of Jonathan Edwards and a monarchist like Rick Warren would have Brian Houston there. Anyway, so Aaron says, it is true that many contemporary praise songs have emerged from the Sydney megachurch, which now boasts campuses across the globe. Some would also claim that Hillsong has been known to propagate a seeker-driven version of the prosperity gospel. Hillsong is co-pastored by Brian Houston and his wife, Bobby. See, there's another problem right there. You know, um, there's no such thing as a female pastor. The Bible actually forbids this. Okay, so one may presume uh, presume that a Southern Baptist such as Rick Warren should avoid lending credence to a group that appears to ignore the biblical mandate against women as pastors, as found in Scripture in places such as 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, or 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Just this year, however, Kay uh, Warren um, preached an entire sermon series uh, during weekend services at another church and also led services at Saddleback, uh, just this past November. Clearly, then, Rick Warren is not adverse to women in the pulpit, not, not adverse to women preachers either. Anyway, uh, teaching biblical truth to mixed audiences. In fact, Warren recently invited popular and prominent Hillsong personality, 
I would say also she's also ordained with the Hillsong gang, uh, Christine Kane, to preach at his church. Kane spoke during Saddleback's weekend services on uh, October 6th and 7th, helping to further her growing popularity within professing evangelical circles. It appears that this uh, latest invitation to Brian Houston of Hillsong only strengthens Warren's apparent endorsement of the Hillsong ministry. Yeah, yeah, that's weird. Again, it's strange that a prominent monarchist and fan of Jonathan Edwards like uh, Rick Warren would be uh, promoting female pastrixes and having somebody like Brian Houston come and uh, teach during the weekend services. Yeah, it's just something to think about. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. We will be right back. We've got a, a Tim Challies piece, and then we're going to be doing part one of a two part thing on debunking Paula White's false teaching regarding generational curses. You don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Living a life of purpose can't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Max Holiday's Birdcage Theater presents Church Day Select. Siri, what is your analysis of the sermon Rick Warren preached this past Sunday? Let me think about that. Here you go. Rick Warren quoted 15 Bible verses out of context using 11 different translations and paraphrases. Even an iPhone utilizing artificial intelligence is smart enough to know that there is less than a 1 in 10,000 chance that Rick Warren was preaching the truth. Siri, can you explain your analysis of Rick Warren's sermon to somebody who is a fan of Star Wars? You have a greater chance of successfully navigating an asteroid field than you do of hearing Rick Warren accurately teach the scriptures. Have you ever prayed a sun stand still prayer? Why would I do something as silly as that? The story of the sun standing still in Joshua chapter 10 is not about prayer. Looking in Joshua chapter 10 to learn how to pray is like asking your Macintosh to teach you how to use Windows 7. What do you think of Joel Osteen's sermons? Is this a joke? No, this is not a joke. I'd really like to know what you think of Joel Osteen's sermons. Words like junk food, cotton candy, and cancer-causing artificial sweeteners come to mind.
Hello, I'm Brandon House with Worldview Weekend. I want to invite you to visit our website, worldviewweekend.com, and find out about my brand new book, Religious Trojan Horse. This is a book I've been working on for two and a half years, and it describes in great detail how the left and the right are coming together both religiously and spiritually to build a false dominant church. You can find all the details at worldviewweekend.com. Again, it's Religious Trojan Horse. It's 500 pages over 600 footnotes. Now, while you're at worldviewweekend.com. I'd like you also to check out our Situation Room. You can have access to over $8,000 in Biblical Worldview Weekend resources, including over 1,400 MP3s of my daily radio show and Biblical Worldview Weekend keynote presentations. You can also watch about 150 of our Worldview Weekend DVDs on demand as a member of the Situation Room. Full details for that are at situationroom.net. Situationroom.net. You can also visit our website and find out about our free Biblical Worldview Weekend rallies held all over the country. All the details are at worldviewweekend.com. Hello, you've reached the office of Pirate Christian Radio. How can I help you? Um, yes. I have a problem. Uh, what's the problem? My Christmas tree is ugly. Well, that's not much of a... And I was wondering if you had anything that could make it look nice. Well, yes, actually. Pirate Christian Radio is selling our very own Christmas bulbs this year. Oh, those sound nice. It gets better, though. Not only do you get a red Christmas bowl with Pyro Christian Radio's logo on it, but it comes adorned with a handmade beaded topper that contains eight real Savorsky crystals. It sounds so pretty. How do I get one? Uh, very easily. Just go to pyrochristianradio.com forward slash bake sale. Thank you very much. You're uh, very welcome. Have a Merry Christmas. Oh, you too. Warning, false teachers always gravitate towards words in the Bible like increase, multiply, bless, and, well, it's they just want to increase their bank accounts in their false teaching. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith, this is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038, and let me thank you for your support. On a warm summer's evening, on a train bound Time for a James McDonald update. Up with a we were both too tired to sleep, so we took turns of staring out the window at the darkness. Boredom overtook us, and he began to speak. He said, son, I've made a life out of reading people's faces, knowing what the cards were by the way they held their eyes. So if you don't mind my saying, I can see you're out of aces for a taste of your whiskey. I'll give you some advice. 
So I handed him my bottle And he drank down my last swallow Then he bombed a cigarette And asked me for a light And the night got deathly quiet And his face lost all expression Said if you're gonna play the game, boy You gotta learn to play Sing it if you know it You got to know when to hold them Know when to fold them Know when to walk away Know when to run You never count your money When you're sitting at the table There'll be time enough to count When the dealing's done Yeah, by the way, uh, James McDonald did um, admit to his congregation that, yeah, he's been playing poker. And he's uh, <clears throat> made a commitment that he will be doing that no longer. But that's not what we're going to be talking about today. Um, Challies, uh, Tim Challies, if uh, you find his uh, website at challies.com, he is kind of like the uber nerd of bloggers out there, very famous for his book reviews. I mean, I think he's read just about every book there ever is and <laughs> written a review about it on Amazon to boot. But uh, he has written a um, a blog post giving a book review of James McDonald's book, Vertical Church. And all I can say is that, whoa, it was not a positive review. In fact, quite, quite the strong review it was published, by the way, on December 19th, 2012. So that's the, the public uh, publishing date for his review. And um, I'm not going to read the whole thing. He does give some strengths regarding the book. Um, let me read some of the strengths. He says, strengths of Vertical Church, the book. He says, Vertical Church has many notable strengths. The discussion of um, verticality is very helpful and provoked the pastor in me to think carefully about the worship services at my church and the role of church leaders in providing an experience of God's glory and majesty. Our role is not simply to check off a list of boxes, singing check, Bible reading check, preaching check, prayer, but to lead people in an encounter with the living God. McDonald's desire to glorify God in every facet of the church's life is laudable and challenging. He shares a great deal of wisdom earned through many years of ministry while critiquing both the church growth movement and those traditional churches that don't care to grow at all, which I think, by the way, is a gloss on his part. But at, then moving along, Chalice then gets to some very serious weaknesses in the book. Um, here's what he says. He says, um, the weaknesses of Vertical Church, but it's not a 120-page book, talking about the book Vertical Church. Rather, it's a little bit over 300 pages. And as it transitions from the why to the how of Vertical Church, weaknesses begin to outweigh strengths. Shelley says, in the chapter on music, McDonald turns away from definitions of worship that extend to all life and says that worship is the, quote, actual act of ascribing worth directly to God and sets it almost entirely in the context of corporate singing. He argues against hymns, great theology racing, uh, racing us by at a pace so dizzying that we all could express as we took our seats was effectively, that was all so true, quote, end quote. The uh, instead advocates songs with fewer words and more repetition. He believes that worship in song would be uh, vertical, that we must frame all language of worship as to him and not merely about him. Otherwise, our worship effectively ignores and potentially offends him by talking about him as though he is not present. He says it must be simple. Intimacy demands simplicity, according to James MacDonald. And with all due respect to hymns filled with great theology, that level of complexity is not what the scripture reveals as God's personal preference. 
for worship. This is what McDonald says in his book. He says that uh, worship must be emotive. Here he sets shoulders up worship against worship that engages the emotions and is expressed with great emotion. Quote, hey, God, how is it that formulaic shoulders up obligation church as a check mark worship working for you? Answer, it's not. And he says worship must be physical. So he goes, you know, Challies then you know, continues to quote from the book. He says, yet some such claims by McDonald are only barely drawn out of Scripture and go unproven. They may reflect preference or perhaps even a degree of wisdom, but never does McDonald prove that they are mandated by God. He does not interact seriously with the songs of the Bible, whether of the Old Testament Psalms or the New Testament hymns, many of which model worship that is to God exactly because it is about God. We do not have to choose between singing to and singing about, and we do not have to choose between worship that is intellectual and worship that is heartfelt. These can easily coexist. The chapter on prayer, while displaying some great strengths, is also beset by similar weaknesses. McDonald makes broad statements, uh, preferences elevated, he elevates preferences to law, lack of biblical proof, false dichotomies. Does fervency in prayer demand volume? McDonald says it does and offers only the fervent prayer of a righteous man results in much as evidence. Should mind only and whispered prayer be the exception in the Christian life? He says it should and turns to Psalm 116 where David says, I love the Lord because he has heard my voice. In Romans 8.15 where Paul writes, You have received the Spirit by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It goes without saying that there are times we may do well to pray aloud loud and with great passion, but the Bible does not command us to do so as a rule. Overall, MacDonald seems to seems drawn to external expressions of worship and supplication as if, as if these are necessary indicators of the kind of vertical affection that God longs to see. At one point, he says theological giants like John Wesley, Whitfield, Edwards, uh, and Lloyd-Jones all embraced and experienced great emotional expressions as evidence of a deep work of God in their services, yet... A reading of Edwards, The Religious Affections, will show that Edwards understood that emotion expre- uh, emotional expression can be dangerously deceptive. Quote, nothing can be certainly known of the nature of religious affections by this, that they much dispose uh, persons with their mouths to praise and glorify God. MacDonald, too, often allows his personal and cultural preferences and this extroverted personality to be prescriptive. Mm-hmm. So Chalice continues, he says, and then there are times when he shows shockingly poor judgment in illustrating with his own life. At one point, he writes about the role of prayer in saving his church from bankruptcy. He prayed to the Lord and then called a contractor whose work had been woefully substandard. Quote, sensing the Lord infusing him with still greater boldness, he told this man, quote, if you do not ship the remaining steel for free, we will close the construction project permanently, take the entire church into bankruptcy, and I will spend the rest of my life pursuing a legal remedy for all of the damages incurred by your company's failure to perform and have until you have until tomorrow at five o'clock to give me your answer. But don't call at 505 because there's a big part of me now hoping your answer is no. That's a direct quote from McDonald's book, Vertical Church, by the way. 
This kind of personal intimidation does not at all stand as an example of the fruit of the Spirit or the character of a man called to be an elder in the church. Next section, entitled Another Concern. Before I conclude, let me express another considerable concern. I know I'm meant to review a book on its own terms, yet I can't help but note contradictions between this book and some of MacDonald's actions in the past year or two. At the beginning of the book are nine pages of endorsements from Christian leaders, including men whose model of church would appear to be anything but vertical. Bill Hybels and Rick Warren are the gurus of church growth, while Stephen Furtick's Elevation Church hardly models strength and... uh, Uh, verticality, yet these men and others like them endorse McDonald's book, Vertical Church. Meanwhile, these men are often endorsed by McDonald in return, whether in the pages of this book or elsewhere. I simply can't understand how McDonald could pen a book like Vertical Church and ignore the the appalling contradictions of T.D. Jakes, a man who holds an unorthodox understanding of the Trinity and who preaches the prosperity gospel in place of the true gospel. Yet, he is a man MacDonald has befriended and defended, and it boggles the mind. So, if you want, again, if you want to read this, uh, the, the entire review, you can find it at chalies.com. Worth taking a look at, but, uh, you know, yeah, there's some pretty serious problems with the book Vertical Church, one of the things I noted, you know, I read it, and and that is is that in the book he begins literally with a, an experience that he had uh, at on the island of Maui at, at the Haleakala crater. You know, there's a volcano, and you know, on you know, on the island of Maui, you go up there, and he started his day off, you know, going to you know, going to the top of the crater, and uh, experiencing the sunrise there. And basically came to the conclusion, based upon his experience at the Haleakala Crater, the church has to have that same kind of, you know, feeling, you know, a rapturous feeling that he felt while watching the sunrise at the Haleakala. Weird that he would judge the church based upon his experiences, and yet that that's exactly what he does throughout the book. And, you know, good on Chalice for pointing that out. All right, moving along. our Paula White update music, Donna Summers. She works hard for the money. That's right, you better learn how to break generational curses. Enough of that. Okay, so <laughs> Paula White uh, on her mm, television program uh, has recently, um, well, done a teaching regarding the importance of breaking generational curses. Now, this is a recurring doctrine and theme that you hear in the Word of Faith camp. If you're familiar with televangelists and the Word of Faith heresy, um, there, you know Paula White's not the only person that teaches this particular doctrine. But when you take the time to actually pull out your Bible and look at the underpinning concepts that they have behind this. Um, well, um, what you find is, is that there's something really missing. And that thing that's missing 
is lucid in context Bible exegesis. And so without any further ado, here is Paula White to explain how you can authoritatively pray to break curses and bring about blessings in your life. No joke. Um, Here's Paula White. Welcome to the program today. As we're in this holiday season, I know that you're thinking about the gifts, the trees, the presents, the budget, the food, all the other things. But I want you to recognize that God gave us the greatest gift, his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus gave his mission statement in John chapter 10, verse 10. He said, I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. Yeah, okay. Wor- yeah, okay. Got to stop right there. Okay. Now, I do not have time to unpack this again. This is kind of a recurring teaching that we have to do here at Fighting for the Faith. All those people out there who are basically trying to make the claim that, oh, G- you know, Jesus' mission statement, he's come to give you life and life ab- abundantly. Well, when you put that verse back in context, it doesn't actually say that. And what I've done, it, in fact, hang on a second here, abundant. Oh, there it is. Okay. There, if, you're, if you've been following us, then you know that we've recently put up a YouTube channel. A YouTube channel, you can find it at youtube.com forward slash fighting the number four, the faith. Yeah, youtube.com forward slash fighting the number four, the faith, all squished together. And we have in our YouTube channel in a uh, video entitled Abundant Life, question mark, rightly understanding John chapter 10, verse 10, rightly understanding John chapter 10, verse 10. So I, if you have questions about how to rightly understand this verse and figure out how she's twisting it, go to that uh, to that resource available on our YouTube channel and you can listen and go oh now i understand why you know why how how and why people are messing that up but i don't i don't want to spend my time on that because we've done that recently but let's continue the word literally means i've come to give you a life that is superior in quality i want you to think for a moment is your life superior in quality Okay, now I'm going to point something out here. We'll do a little deconstructing work here. That question is is like the question that Satan asked Eve in the Garden of Eden. It is a deconstructing question, and here's the, the purpose of it. Okay, she number one, she's cited John ten ten out of context, and hasn't rightly taught us what it says. Okay, number two. Now she says, oh, the word abundant here is, it means to have an you know, exceedingly great quality of life or whatever, right? That's what apparently Jesus is. So here's the question. Are you experiencing a life of superior quality? And you sit there and go, hmm, no, I'm not. Well, see, that is designed. The reason why people like Paula ask a question like that is because, well, see, that's designed to cause you to distrust your pastor and to trust her. And here's how the logic goes. Well, my pastor never told me that I'm supposed to have a superior quality life. Huh. Why hasn't he told me this? Well, here Paula is telling me about this. So I'm not going to trust my pastor, but I'm going to trust uh, Paula. Okay. Pastrix Paula. Despite the fact that Pastrix Paula is not supposed to be a Pastrix, right? Okay. So, I mean, already you should have be having red flags. This is a deconstructing question cause, that's designed to cause you to distrust your real pastor and to trust her because Paul is going to level with you. She's going to give you the information that your pastor hasn't been telling you. We continue. Do you have a quality life? Because salvation is much more than just simply going to heaven. 
God wants to get some heaven here to you on earth. Okay. What verses say that in context, by the way? But the reality is there is something that many of us have to deal with. It's generational blessings and generational cursings. No, really? Gasp. I had no idea. To deal with generational cursings and blessings? My pastor never told me about this. Jesus Christ came and became a curse that we might receive blessing. So the greatest gift. So close. I mean, yeah, I mean, yes, Jesus Christ became a curse because cursed is everyone who was hung on a tree. Um, but boy, yes, yeah, now she's citing, you know, like verses you know, without citing them. Okay, this is not good. Gift was that God gave us his son and that we would no longer be a victim under the curse of the law, that we would be redeemed, that we could be free from all of the cycles that had been passed down and legally in the spirit had to be recurring because the Bible says up to three or four generations that there are curses that the sins of our forefathers will be passed down unless somebody knows how to break it. Oh, wait a second. Okay, did, hang on a sec. I gotta back this up because details matter. Now, let me kind of again. We're gonna slow things down a little bit here. Pay close attention to what she's doing. She's not actually exegeting. She's claiming to make reference to something that's taught in the Bible, right? But she hasn't actually read the passage. And then if you're familiar with the passage at all that she's sort of referencing, she's adding to it. Remember our addition and uh, subtraction episode of Fighting for the Faith. Bible twisters add to and subtract from the scripture in order to teach their doctrine and their theology, not to teach what the scriptures say. So let me back this up just enough so that you can hear this and see if you can spot the addition to scripture. Okay. Now this requires you to actually know what the passage says, but don't worry, we'll we'll get it to you so that you can actually hear it. But she adds something to the scripture. Okay. Let me back this up. Here we go. We'll add about twenty seconds. Hit, hit, listen again. Because the Bible says up to three or four generations that there are curses that the sins of our forefathers will be passed down unless somebody knows how to break it. Okay. The, the addition, by the way, was the phrase, unless somebody knows how to break it. Okay, Let's pull out our Bibles and take a look at this, the, the passage that she's sort of referencing. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. This is where the Ten Commandments are found. We're going to look at verse 8. In the, uh, not verse 8. We're going to start at verse 5. We're going to take a look at this in context, and then we'll even look at a cross-reference in the book of Deuteronomy. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. Pay close attention here. Um, here's what it says. You shall not bow down to them, talking about false gods, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay. Notice here that um, nothing here about somebody needs to know how to break the generational curse. Okay. Not, no reference to somebody, oh, you got to know how to break it. Yeah, no, that's not there in the text at all. And let's take a look at um, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Let me add a little context here, see if we can grab verse 8. 
Um, here's what it says. Deuteronomy chapter five, verse eight, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven or above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So this is, these are the two passages, the primary passages that talk about, um, you know, God visiting iniquity on you know, people who hate him and stuff like that. And these form the basis for the so-called teaching of generational curses. But again, you'll find out what's missing there. It is the thing that Patricia King, uh, not Patricia King, uh, Paula White added. Okay, let me back it up again so you can hear it, hear her say it. Listen again. Generations, that there are curses that the sins of our forefathers will be passed down unless somebody knows how to break it. So the sins of our forefathers will be passed down unless somebody knows how to break it. Nope, no passage says that at all. But it seems logical, doesn't it? I mean, if there's a generational curse, I mean, doesn't it seem plausible that somebody needs to know how to break those curses? The problem is, is that if God wanted you to break those curses, there would be a section in the scripture that says generational curses, how to break them. Pretty straightforward, but there's no such passage. We continue. So let's get into the word. Let's see what the Bible has to say, because I don't want you going into 2013 or into next year carrying the same baggage. If Christ came to set you free and bring you blessing, then let's get in position and see how we can release the goodness of God in our life. Get in position and release the goodness of God in our life? What are you talking about? Get in position? So, you know, but isn't this really nice of her? I mean, she's, she is so kind. She's just thinking about you. I mean, you, she doesn't want you going into 2013 with one of these generational curses, you know, hanging on your back like, you know, a bunch of unwanted baggage. She just wants you to know how to break this curse. Oh, that's so kind of her. In John chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, those who have been born again through receiving Jesus, that God has given them the right to become the children of God. The Greek word right literally means exousia. It means authority. Exousia. Um, yeah, okay. Um, he, he, yes. The, the, the John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, those who believe in God has given the right to become children of God. And yes, the word right is the Greek word exousia. Correct. But watch what she does here. Okay, now this, she is really good at her Bible twisting. I mean, she has got this down to a science. What she's, gonna, she, what she's done is she's quoted a passage where it says that in Scripture we have the right to become children of God. She's made reference to the Greek, but watch what she does. She's going to add more information that isn't in this passage at all. Let me back it up so you can hear her. She's going to be adding things to this, this concept of exousia. Here we go. God. The Greek word right literally means exousia. It means authority. So God has given you who are born again, who have a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, the authority as a child of God. Now, what you have to reckon. No, no, no. He's given me the authority to be a child of God. Grammar matters here. Okay. He's given us the authority to be or become children of God. She's changed it ever so slightly okay listen again boy man she is just slippery she's like mercury on a you know on a formica table hey let's listen again as she adds to this concept here we go on jesus christ the authority as a child of god the authority as a child of god 
See, that's that's key. She took it from the authority to be to the authority as two completely different ideas. And the one, the authority to be, the right to be, is what's found in that text. The authority as, that's something that's not in this text. And I'm telling with her, it just, a single word makes the difference. Because she's already, at this point, she's already twisted this text even though she's creating the impression that what she's teaching is biblical. Now, what you have to recognize is you have authority. It has been given to you. Yeah, I have the authority, the right to be a child of God. So with that authority, you have to exercise it because every day, and you're going to find out that the... I have to exercise my authority? The main vehicle for blessings or cursings is words. Where does this say this in the Bible? The main vehicle for blessings and cursings is words. I'm not familiar with that verse in context. So now she's, okay, so she changed it from the authority to be the children of God to the authority as, and you need to now exercise that authority through words. This is not what John chapter 1 verses 12 through 13 says. Hmm. Every day, what words you speak because you have been given authority, either heaven is coming in agreement with you or hell is coming in agreement with you. Really, do you have a Bible verse that says that? I'm not familiar with any passage that says any such nonsense. So authority is effective only if it is exercised. The potential of the new birth or salvation is unlimited. But the actual results depend on the exercise of the authority that each one... Yeah, are you exercising your authority? I mean, do you take your authority out for a walk every day and exercise it? Again, what Bible verse actually says this? All she did was say the Greek word for right there, where you have the right to become a children of God, is the Greek word exousia. She mispronounced it. And then because it's the word authority, that means... Ergo, that you have to speak words and, and you know exercise your authority. That doesn't mean that at all. One of us, as children of God, as born-again believers, exercise in our life. What you will become or see released in your life is determined to the extent by the exercise of your God-given authority. Again, Bible verses that say that, what good comes into my life will be determined by, you know, to the degree by the things I exercise regarding the authority. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but isn't Tiger Woods like still a very wealthy man? I mean, yeah, I understand that half of his stuff had to go to uh, his ex-wife. That was kind of a messy situation. But uh, last time I checked, Tiger Woods still flies in private jets. He still makes a truckload of money on, you know, out on the tour. And I mean, he's a very, and he's a Buddhist. Um, How did he become so wealthy? I mean, based on this magical principle that you're giving here, people like Tiger Woods should be paupers. And, well, Christians who exercise their God-given child authority, or the authority as children, not to be children, they should be, they're the the ones who should be out there, you know, rolling in the dough, right? It doesn't make any sense. I mean, it doesn't pan out in in real life or anything. This is, this is just, well... This is a teaching to scratch itching ears to make you think that, oh, listen, 
there's these secret principles that Paul is going to tell you that your pastor isn't going to tell you. I mean, has your pastor told you about, you know, having a superior quality of life? I bet he hasn't. Well, Paul is going to tell you about it. See, she's going to tell you the Greek word is for, for authority is exousia. And that means you have to exercise your authority. And when you do that, you're going to come in agreement with heaven and, and heaven's going to open up. And then Patricia King's going to show up with a big increase check for you. Yeah, right. Uh Uh-huh. And if you believe this, I have magic beans that I'd like to sell you. In other words, the decisions you make, how you take the word and work the word, what you do with the... Work the word. That's what witches do with spells. They work those words. Yeah, this is witchcraft. Price that Jesus Christ paid. The Bible declares in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I, God, have set before you life and death. Uh, <clears throat> boy, boy, we're going to have to spend some time in context. Deuteronomy chapter 30. Hold on a second here. I'm going to pull this up in my computerized Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 30. By the way, again, just to review, um, our three primary rules for sound biblical exegesis are context, context, and context. And here's the fun part. 90 to 95% of all Bible twisting just gets cleared up like that. It, all you got to do is apply a little bit of context. You know how, like, you know, if you have a rash, you put cortisone on it and it just clears it right up. Context is like cortisone. It just clears up a good heretical rash just like that. And so we're going to put some context on Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Now, the way she just taught it, you'd think that Deuteronomy chapter 13 is God saying, listen, you need to exercise your authority, dog. Make sure you take him out on the leash and, you know, make sure that he's got, you know, he's been run for the day so that you can have heaven come in alignment with you so that you, yeah, that's not what it's saying at all. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 30, I will begin, let's see here, how much context do I want to add? Verse 11, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us to bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But... If you turn your hearts away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord your, uh, Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to them. <clears throat> so, um, anything here about exercising your authority with words and having heaven? No, nothing here. Because what is this? 
This, folks, is the uh, blessing and cursing portion of the Mosaic Covenant. This is not the covenant that we Christians are under, by the way. Okay? You, in fact, you need to do some good work on the, you know, understanding the difference between the Abrahamic Covenant and the Mosaic Covenant, or the New Covenant versus the Old Covenant. This is a covenant of works under the Mosaic Covenant, and the, this is you know, laying out the, the blessings and the curses portion of the covenant. You don't follow these things, bad things are going to happen to you, okay? And bad things to happen to the people of Israel. They broke this covenant left, right, and sideways, and diagonally, and horizontally, and any which way you can possibly think of, they found ways of breaking this covenant. God finally had enough and exercised his legal right to basically banish them from the land and send them into exile, right? That's what, what goes on here. So um, she's now quoting a portion from the blessing and cursing portion of the Mosaic Covenant, which we as Christians are not under, and somehow turning this into a magic spell that this is, this is a portion of Scripture that teaches you that you need to exercise your authority with your words. But it doesn't say that at all. Blessing and cursing, and therefore choose life or exercise your authority for the life that is set before you. That's not what this passage says. I just read it in context. It doesn't say that at all. That both you and your seed may live. This is about generations to come. Things need to be broken over your life. Habitual sins, cycles. Every woman gets pregnant out of wedlock. Every person is abused. Everybody goes through a divorce. Everyone's an alcoholic. Everybody has a certain kind of addiction. Everybody suffers depression. Those things. Who says these things? Things can be broken by the blood of Jesus and through the word of God. Teach me, Pastor Paula. Show me how. See, here, here it's very clear. The provision that we're going to focus on is the exchange from cursing to blessing. The alternatives are clear. Life is set before you. And death is set before you. Life is the blessings of God. Death is cursing. And it says, you choose this day. Although life and blessing have been provided, the choice is yours which you will live in. And I often say it's not that we're doing something wrong. It's that we're not doing enough of what it's right. Uh, <laughs> good night. I mean, she even has built a theology off of her misquoted passage of scripture from Deuteronomy here. This is completely biblically absurd. The Bible says that my people perish because of lack of knowledge. It's what we don't know. <laughs> context, context, context. By the way, she was just quoting there from the uh, prophet Hosea. Hosea, let me pull this up on my computerized Bible. Hosea chapter 4. Man, we've been doing a lot of context today. Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Well, let's put some context around this, find out what's going on here, and see if this is basically saying what Paula White just said that it's saying, but she didn't really quote it in context. <clears throat> Hosea, Hosea 4, 1. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. And no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns and all who dwell in it languish. And all the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, even the fish of the sea are taken away. <clears throat> wow. All of that because people are disobeying God. They're engaging in wickedness and evil. Yet, let no one contend and let none accuse 
For with you is my contention, O priest, you shall stumble by day, and the prophets shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because they have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a priest to me, and since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Mm -hmm. See, the lack of knowledge here is a direct lack of knowledge of the revealed written word of God and his laws. That's what's being referred to here. Not that you're destroyed for lack of knowledge, for not for failing to exercise your exousia so that you can break generational curses. Boy, she is a slick teacher. Slick, slick twister of God's word. We continue. That can be killing us or causing us, even though we love God with all of our heart, to walk out under that curse. He reminded them this choice not only affects you, but it also affects your descendants, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, those... Yes, you don't want your grandchildren cursed because you forgot to exercise your exousia. ...and your lineage and your legacy long after you're gone. He said, choose this day for you and your seed. So it continues from generation to generation. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Have you ever wondered and asked yourself, why do I love God so much? <laughs> no, my, my big question is, man, why do I keep sinning and showing that I don't love him? But it doesn't seem to be working. How do I get a divine reversal for me and my family? Get a divine reversal? How do I get me one of them divine reversals? Family, because this is a... Isn't the cross the ultimate divine reversal? Excuse me, but the, the gospel, the biblical gospel, the one she's not preaching tells us of the like the ultimate divine reversal because each and every one of us is born dead in trespasses and sins and heading to hell. But the divine reversal is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's trespasses against them. You know, the idea is that, uh, that uh, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the divine reversal. Here she's talking about, you know, hey, you know, are you having financial problem? Would you like a divine reversal? Well, you need to break those generational curses is what you need to do by exercising your exousia. About generational blessing. Have you ever wondered why you love God, but your life is not working for you, for your family, your finances? Remember, this is about generational blessings. Uh-huh. Yeah, you haven't even shown a coherent, single, lucid verse in context to demonstrate this teaching is actually what the Bible reveals. It's about your family, about your seed as well. The decisions you make today don't only impact you, but they impact all those that you love, all those that you will produce, all those that are in your lineage, your succession. Let's examine a deeper look at Deuteronomy. Okay, we're going to stop there. We'll pick this up tomorrow. But you kind of get the taste of what it is that she does. She is really good at this, and that ain't good. But she is extremely gifted in her ability to just rattle off all of these verses and passages out of context to create the impression that, that the Bible teaches that, you know, you got to learn how to exercise your exousia so, with your words so that you can bring heaven in alignment with you and experience a divine reversal. Boy, she, she, I mean, no blushing, no, I mean, just absolutely no conscience whatsoever regarding all of her Bible twisting. But there it is. And she does in such a, you, you got to think about your grandchildren here. Don't you care about them? You see, Pastor, Pastrix Paula, she's going to tell you what none of your pastors are telling you. But she, and she, and it's only because she cares about your yet-to-be-born grandchildren. You know? I mean, this she, this is just so selfless on her part. 
Yeah, excuse me. I, I, I've learned that you have to cough three times, once for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit whenever you hear something like this. So hang on. <clears throat> so there we go. All right, uh, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Other side of the break, sermon review from CB Glades from one of the young pups in the seeker driven movement. You know, get your crash helmet, you'll need it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. The holiday travel season is now upon us. It came out of nowhere, didn't it? But listen, despite the fact that it comes up so quick, the last thing you want to do is pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. That's why you want to utilize Pirate Christian Radio's longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air, for all of your holiday travel needs. Visit our website first, though, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap and you'll find a promo code there that'll help you save an additional $15 off the cheapo airs already low prices right down the promo code then click on the ad banner and book your holiday travel uh, arrangements uh, using their website very easy to use very inexpensive you save an additional $15 and by visiting our website first and then writing down that promo code a portion of your purchase will go to support pirate christian radio so again piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap write down the promo code click on the ad banner and save lots of money on your holiday travel needs okay we're back hour number two of fighting for the faith sermon review time open up your bible to luke chapter five the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith, War and Equal Opportunity Sermon Reviewing Service. Today's (laughs) Masleration comes to us via Church by the Glades, Coral Springs, Florida. Corey Castle, C-A-S-S-E-L-L, Cassell, Cassell, I don't know. Corey from CB Glades is preaching, and the name of his Masleration is entitled More Than Almost, and it's part of the Purple Christmas sermon series. Okay, uh, keep this in mind. Are you ready? The Bible's not about you. Yeah, I know it's kind of tough to take that news, but it's true. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. So when you're reading a gospel text like 
you know, from Luke chapter 5, the story of the healing of the paralytic, the story was put there because, number one, it's historical. Number two, it's to tell us about Jesus, not about you. It's about him, not you, him. Uh, somebody needs to uh, let Corey know that uh, the Bible's about Jesus, not about him. And by the way, he's going to do what all Bible twisters do. He's going to add information into the text. Remember our addition subtraction thing? He's going to add information in there. And what he's going to do is he's literally going to preach from the added information. Seems to be a common technique used by Bible twisters a lot today, especially in the seeker-driven movement and liberal churches. Anyway, so let's go ahead and kill the music. And without any further ado... Here is uh, uh, Pastor uh, Martext, uh, Corey, from uh, CB Glades. Here we go. Yes, the sermon starts with this. Is that the dance of the sugar plum fairies? Yeah, Purple Christmas. What does that even... That, they've been celebrating Purple Christmas down there in Coral Springs. I have no clue what purple has to do with Christmas, but okay! Church, while you're having a seat, let's give God a hand. Come on. Come on, everybody. Give God a high five. Woo. Man, I was backstage with some of the backstage hands just jumping around and worshiping with you guys. So good to be in church today. Anybody agree? Ah, God. Man, I can't even tell. You ever have just one of those weeks where, like, pretty much everything that could go wrong goes wrong? Just, like, distractions coming at you, like left, right, and center. Man, I had one of those weeks this week. You know what that tells me? God wants to do something today. Man, just the enemy trying to distract me like crazy. That just tells me. Okay, I'm telling you. I I wish you could see what I'm seeing, okay? All I can say is this, is that Stephen Furtick had better look out, okay? This kid is way better looking than Stephen Furtick, and he's got Stephen Furtick's chops. This guy looks like one of the Backstreet Boys. We continue. Hey man, God wants to do something today. So if you ain't ready, you better get ready because God's going to do something in this house today. Y'all ready? Yeah. All right. All right. If not, we're going to get you ready. Man, guys, I'm excited to be here. So it's kind of like, you know, Stephen Furtick meets Justin Bieber. You know, that's I think that's what we're looking at. I'm telling you, I'm just telling you, this guy would be like the seeker-driven heartthrob, you know. <clears throat> who's who's that guy who sings Living La Vida Loca? Yeah, you know what I'm saying. He looks a lot like that guy. We continue. My name's Corey. I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Church by the Glades. And if I can, you know, I'll do it every time I'm on this stage. I, man, we have one of the best lead pastors in the country. Pastor David and his wife, Lisa. No, you don't. You have one of the best Bible twisters in the world. The fact that a young punk like me gets to stand on the same stage is just some 
spiritual legends like Pastor David and Pastor Tom and even TC bringing it. By the way, Sample Road's blowing up right now. If you didn't know, TC's bringing it over there at Sample Road. If you're super spiritual, you'll double dip. Come here today, go to Sample Road tonight at 6. Just get all that seriously. I recommend it. He's going to bring it. Let's give it up for Sample Road and everybody watching online, by the way. It's cool to be a part of our church. It's cool to be a part of our church, man. But like I said, Pastor David's out spreading that church by the glades DNA across the country. Speaking of yeah, Google, it's, it, he looks like Ricky Martin from you know that that uh, live in La Vida Loca. I'm just telling you, okay. Where Stephen Furtick is like the angry, audacious dude. This would be like the seeker-driven heartthrob pastor. I can just tell. You know, two three years, this guy has got a, a church plant, one of the fastest growing churches in the nation. Is going to be mostly teenage girls. Yeah, I'm just saying. We move along. Another church this weekend. So you got me. It's okay. We'll get through it. Um, but uh, We'll get through it. It's okay. But Pastor David will be back in the house for our kickoff of Purple Christmas next week. And man, let, me, let me just ask that question. How many of you before stepping in here today heard about Purple Christmas? Raise your hand. Okay. Got some excitement about it. How many of you? Unfortunately, I had to raise my hand. I did hear about it. Before stepping in here today, had no idea, had never heard of Purple Christmas. Raise your hand. Nice. I like that. How many of you, now that you've all heard about it, how many of you think you may know what it's going to be about? Raise your hand. Oh, wow. Like four people. Awesome. How many? Yeah, I have no clue. You have no clue at all. Purple Christmas. Why are we purple? Yeah, I'm, I'm in the clueless department. Yes, that's what we want. That's good, man. Well, today we're about to jump into some great scripture. But before we do, I just want to pray for us again. I said, man, God's just doing something today, and so I just wanted to take a moment and pray. But one thing I love about- Notice the sappy music. That he this I'm telling you, Furtick is the guy who has the sappy music at the front of the sermon. Okay. This guy's taking his his taking his chops from Furtick. He's mimicking Furtick's method. So yeah, we got the sappy music. Rather than just exclusively being at the end, it's right there in the front. He's doing the Stephen Furtick thing. At our church, I, I just I'm absolutely in love with this fact. And you've seen it on the t-shirts, says there's no perfect people allowed. We are all, man, raise your hand if you're not perfect. <laughs> me? I am so screwed up. Not even funny. Y'all pray for me. For real though, like, man, we're, we're just a bunch of non-perfect people trying to live and love and learn what it means to love and live and learn like Jesus because he's the one perfect person. And what I love about that. Yeah, that's all law. Do you know what the gospel is? Man, you can be. You can be from whatever background you come from. You can you could have been at the club last night. You could have been wilding out, you know, from whatever lifestyle you're coming from. And you can walk into church by the glades. And you can look around and just recognize that none of us are perfect and feel welcome here. <laughs> right. So if you find somebody with, like, you know, a cold cloth on their forehead, they were out clubbing last night, at, you know, and they're, they got, they're nursing a hangover there at CB Glades. Way to represent. And feel well, and I, I'm just grateful to be a part of a church like that. We all know we're hypocrites in one area or another. We all know we're not perfect, and we're trying, we're trying to love like Jesus together. And I, man, I'm trying to love like Jesus together sounds like something you do in a commune. I love that, and what I love is there's people that come in our doors that have never stepped foot into a church before. And, and if that's you, thank you so much for coming today. Seriously, we, we just appreciate you. Getting brave. What exactly makes your church a church? It doesn't look like a church, and based on what you're going to do with the scripture, it certainly doesn't sound like anything a pastor would do during a church service. And coming in these doors and checking out what church and Jesus is all about. But what I've also learned is, you know, we use, I grew up in church, and so we'll use a lot of words that if you've never been to church, it's like what, like righteousness, sanctification, doctrine of original sin, Romans chapter 5. I'd love to hear you try to preach on that. If you've never been to church, you're like, what? 
is going on? Now, don't worry. No one will actually ever preach that sermon at CB Glades. I don't think I've ever heard them preach on the doctrine of original sin or or an exegetical sermon on Romans 5. Don't worry. Nobody coming in with a hangover after clubbing last night is going to hear that at CB Glades. I don't know. And one of those things we say a lot of times when we take for granted, we'll say, let's pray. And when I say, let's pray, what does everybody do? Immediately, it's just like, bam. Like, bow your heads, close your eyes. Man, if you're new and we say, let's pray, and that would freak you out. Because if you've never been and everybody all of a sudden does something, it's kind of like, what is happening? Like, you just don't know. But man, we bow our heads just out of a sign of respect and submission to our God and King. That's all. It's an outward symbol of what we're hopefully doing in our hearts. Also, it's like baptism for you. And we close our eyes. I don't know if y'all know this, but... May everybody take your hands, kind of put them together. You know those pictures of little kids praying? Put your hands together. Put your hands, close your eyes. You know why we do that? That's not really even biblical. That comes from the medieval times. That's what they would tell children. They tell them to put their hands together and cross their fingers and close their eyes so they wouldn't get distracted. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's why we do that. If, if you read the Bible, you'll see that a biblical posture of prayer, the Jews back in the day, they would pray with their eyes lifted to, their heaven, to the heavens and their hands stretched out wide. You ever seen a movie? Somebody pulls a gun on somebody. Hopefully that's never happened to you in real life. Somebody pulls a gun on you though. What do you do? Right? I surrender. Done. Yeah. Put it down. That's exactly what it means when we stretch out our hands, when they would stretch out their hands. And and some of you see us doing that in worship. We stretch out our hands in worship. It's a sign of surrender. It's again, it's an outward sign of what. So God's holding a gun to you during worship and you're surrendering. Got it. Okay. What we're hopefully doing in our hearts. So again, if it's your first time in here and you're like, man, why are people putting their hands up? They like raising the roof. We do that a little bit too. Mostly it's just a sign of just surrender. We bow our You raising the roof? Woo! Woo! Heads out of respect. And so if I can, just start us off today. I'm going to pray for us. Y'all ready? All right, let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you that you love us enough to wake us up this morning, God. Thank you that we're breathing right now, that we're bringing bringing oxygen into our lungs and we're exhaling. And God, we just affirm that that's a sign that you want to do something today, that you're going to do something today. So the fact that I'm breathing is an affirmation that God wants to do something today. Have a plan for us because we're still breathing. And so God, right now, we just... Seriously, did you get your theology from the back of a box of Fruit Loops? What is this? Commit to you. You do what you do. You do whatever you want to do in here today, God. Father, I pray that you would shut me up. Like, may Corey Castle not be heard. Yes, please answer that prayer. May you, may you speak to every one of us. Me, people at the tech booth, people sitting down, the band. Like, may us all be changed right now in this time because of your presence and because of your word. So God, we're down. We're down for whatever you want to do. And we love the fact that you love us enough to do it. So after this, are we going to do the glad handing of the peace? What is this? It's in your name. We pray, listen, serve, and worship today. Everybody said? Amen. All right. All right. Let's give a hand to the band. These guys are awesome. Again, we're blessed. We're blessed with an amazing worship team. I said it I said it last time too. They don't even, they don't just sound good. Like they look good while they do it. You ever watch them and they're just like into it. You're like, God, I wish I could look that cool. While I was like, they just, uh, and I'm like, oh, I can't do that. that. By the way, I just said another churchy word. I said, amen. A lot of, if you've never been to church before, you may have heard that in a movie or something. Amen. Amen's an old school Bible word. It means directly translated. So be it. Or like, I agree with modern day translation would be like right on, or that's what's up or mm. So anytime now for real, you can end up mm. Mm. 
prayer with like, that's what's up, God. Like he appreciates that. You're just talking to him, not putting up a front. Like anytime, I love being a part of a church too. When Pastor David's just like bringing it, I mean, it's just hitting you in, my, in your heart. Like, I know sometimes for me, it's just like... Really, when was the last time Pastor David Hughes was bringing it? Was that during the Circus by the Glades sermon? Mmm, like, you, ah, and I'll just let out one of those, like, yeah, like, amen. Or, you know, if you ever follow me on Twitter, I like hashtag them. I'll say, like, them, like, yeah. So feel free at any time. Like, it's cool. We participate in teaching. We don't just listen, but, like, we participate in what God's doing. So if God does something in your heart while I'm speaking, please, Jesus, do it. Like, you feel free. Amen. That's what's up. You know, whatever you want to do. I said that last in last night's service, and those people were, like, crazy. They were, like, whoo. I was just, like, calm down. So whatever you feel led to do. We're going to roll with it. Okay. I feel led to do a gratuitous Fighting for the Faith musical interlude. That's right. Muppet dance if you're sitting. enough of that yeah I, I felt led to do that because i'm watching this video of this kid i swear he is like the younger brother of ricky martin we continue but today we're going to be in luke chapter five everybody say that with me luke chapter five. luke chapter five. i got that from pastor david i love that it's like easy crowd participation we're going to be in luke chapter five and we're going to dig in a little bit about- no i assure you you won't i've listened to the sermon what it means to get someone to Jesus, because if you didn't know, we're at a really, really key time in our church, a really cool ministry season right now. The holiday season is this time in the year where people are just like hyper receptive to church and the gospel. And I mean, even Christmas in and of itself, Christ Christmas, more of Christ. I mean, people are. <laughs> Christ Moss, more of Christ. Oh, that is one of the dumbest things I and they don't even know it. They want more of Jesus right now. If for some reason people will just go to church and during this time and they wouldn't go the rest of the year, they'll just come. They're like You can extend an invite and they will receive it during this next month. And so we're going to look at some people that cared enough to get a friend to Jesus and try and learn some lessons from them about how we in this time can take this hyper-receptive time and, and just capitalize on it to get people to Jesus, because now, let me make something really clear here. This text in Luke five, it's about Jesus and the people who showed up there. You know, with the the, the guy on the par- with the paralytic, they had like a cameo appearance. But Jesus is the one who the story is about. I just have to set that up because what you're going to hear here is 
Well, it's just like preaching La Vida Loca. That's all I'm saying. We here at Church by the Glades are about two things, Jesus and his word. I love that. Yeah, if that were true, then you'd preach Jesus from his word, which you're not about to do. I mean, aren't y'all excited to be in a church that's about Jesus and his word? All right, so if you're in Luke chapter 5, you've opened your Bible to it. Hopefully you've opened up your app, you've scrolled to it, you've done whatever you needed to do to get to Luke chapter 5. If you're there, say yeah. yeah. All right, that's a, at least a third of you. Um, I'm just kidding, that was a lot of you. Look at your neighbor say you look good today. Encourage somebody. Look at your other neighbor and say, notice I didn't say that to you. I'm just kidding, don't say that. Look at your other neighbor and say, you look good too. You look even better, I saved the best for last. All beautiful people in God's eyes. I'm just kidding. That was mean. I did not mean that. Everyone's beautiful. Pray for me. Here we go. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 17. Starting in verse 17, it says, On one of those days, anybody ever have one of those days? Raise your hand. One of those days. Yeah, you know, it was one of those days. You, you all have one of those days because th- there it says right there in Luke chapter 5, verse 17, you know, on one of those days. This is just sophomoreish and ridiculous. Seriously, did you spend as much time actually going to seminary and learning the biblical languages as you did primping your hair this morning before church? That's everybody. All right, everybody's like Tuesday. That's that day. One of those days, man. As he, he being Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. That's a big deal. Jesus was healing people in this time. And behold, some men were bringing on a mat a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. I want you to all read these two words with me. But finding... Come on, this is 1145. We're awake in here. Come on. But finding finding no way we'll get to that in a second but finding no way by the way on the screen there that's highlighted and underlined finding no way this is an important theological point that he's going to find in this text to bring him in because of the crowd they went up on the roof and let him down with his mat through the tiles into the midst before jesus what we have here is a group of people with a friend the friend had a need and that need was to get healed So whenever there's a Bible character that I don't have a name for, the Bible doesn't name, I always like to name him. And so right now we have a paralyzed man and we're going to call him Tim. Everybody say Tim. Tim. All right, so we got Tim. Tim has a need. Tim's friends see that Tim has a need. He's been paralyzed probably for a long time because he's had this need enough to where his friends have gotten fed up with it and they want to see Tim healed. So Tim needs to be healed. They're fed up with it and they want to see Tim healed, really. Usually when people are paralyzed, the, the, well... The attitude that people have towards the paralyzed person is, yikes, this person's going to be this way for the rest of their lives. I don't know anybody who looks at, you know, like their paralyzed friends or relatives and goes, I'm just sick and tired of this. It's about time you got healed. So the friends go, there's the need. The need is healing. So what do we need to do? We got to get a vision. And they got a vision for how to. You got to get a what? A vision. Oh, no. You've been listening to the vision casting uh, David Hughes way too much. So now apparently he's discovered that they found uh, they had a vision. See, you know, and you got to get a vision too. Solve the problem to how to meet the need. And the vision was get Tim to Jesus. Because if we can get Tim to Jesus, change will come. Change will come if we can get Tim to Jesus. Because when someone gets to Jesus, everything changes. So the need was healing. The vision was to get Tim 
to Jesus. Everybody say that word with me. Vision. vision. Say vision. Which nowhere appears in this text. Notice he's now added an entire segment you know, between the text, the lines in the text, we've now got this whole vision thing in Luke 5, that, and it's not even there. Isn't that weird? you got to get a vision. I've been learning a lot about vision lately in the past few years of my life. And what- I sure you have, sitting under David Hughes. One thing I've learned is in the book of Proverbs, it says that without vision, the people perish. Yeah, let's take a look at that. <laughs> Hang on a second here. Yeah, without vision, the people perish. Let me, wow. Without vision, uh, there it is. Hang on a second here. I want to say that, yeah, uh, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. Boy, I feel like today's episode needs to be called the context episode because we're context, context, context. It seems to be the emerging theme. Proverbs 29, verse 18. Uh, So without vision, the people perish. See, this this is the great vision casting passage. Well, um... It, it doesn't actually say that. Um, that's uh, Sorry, verse 18. It doesn't really actually say that at all. Watch this. Are you ready? Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. So what's the vision being referred to in Proverbs 29, 18? Answer, the written word of God. You could literally... Um, substitute the word prophetic vision for Bible, okay? Where there is no Bible, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law of the Lord. It works It works that way, okay? But he's, at this point, you see, these guys, these friends of this poor paralytic, they had vision. Therefore, they, they weren't perishing, or their friend wasn't going to perish because they had vision. That's not what Proverbs twenty nine eighteen is talking about at all. King Solomon was talking about the nation of Israel when he said that. He said, man, I am... No, he was talking about the word of God. I just read it to you. I am the king over an entire nation, one of the most powerful nations at its day, in its day, at its time. And he said, man, without vision, my people will perish. In other words, if they have nothing... Yeah, because King Solomon, the, the original vision casting king, you know, who knew? I mean, he was the precursor for, you know, like David Hughes, Mark Driscoll... Stephen Furtick, Perry Noble. I mean, you know, it's King Solomon, the very first vision casting guy out there. Yeah. ...to shoot for. If they have no goal to try and attain, they will just meander and wander and eventually... Yeah, unfortunately, uh, Proverbs 29, 18 is not talking about a goal that you're trying to attain. It's about not having the word of God. Perish. It's the same thing for you and I in our personal lives, in our relationships, in our families, in our jobs, in our city, in our church. If we do not have a vision for where we're going, all of the above. Where in Luke chapter 5 does it talk about us having a vision for our community, neighbor, our lives, or whatever? How are we here? I I don't understand why this is even a point, because this isn't in Luke 5 at all. I mean, in our, in our personal lives, man, sometimes whether it be five months or five years or 20 years, if you didn't catch a vision for your life, you'll all of a sudden look around and go, how am I still here? How am I still doing this? Why haven't I done more? It's because you didn't have a vision. Yeah, see, the reason why this sermon is turning out as badly as it is is because you seem to fail to have a prophetic vision. That would be God's Bible actually governing what you're saying and preaching here. See, you're casting off restraint, just like Proverbs 29, 18 says. See, that's your problem. What I've learned is 
Without vision, people perish. The antithesis of that is true as well. With vision, people flourish. With the vision, the people will flourish. And so when it comes to having vision, all you got to do really is ask. You got to ask for vision. You got to catch a vision. Where in Luke 5 does it say that I need to ask for vision? Or catch a vision. or yeah, I wouldn't want to catch a vision from you. I might have to get that cleared up with penicillin or something. God vision is a big thing. But what I've also learned too is sometimes we can get so caught up in little details that we forget to catch the vision that God's trying to drop on us. Earlier, God, God's trying to drop a vision on me? Again, where is this in Luke 5? I'm not seeing that anywhere. This week, I was actually down in Haiti with the team from our church. If you didn't know, we, some, we sponsor and support a couple orphanages down there. It's cool to be a part of a church. Cool to be a part of a church that, you know, practices true religion, takes care of orphanages. Any Haitians in the house? Yeah. Sapoise. No, I've learned. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm learning. That's my one phrase. Bonjour. That's, they all use that one there. But... Man, I love the time down there, but I was helping coordinate that trip. And, you know, I I found myself on our second morning there just getting so caught up in the details. Like, is the van there? Do we have enough water for everybody? Is the stuff, the supplies we need for the orphans here? You know, and and then I just kind of stopped and I said, man, God, I don't want to spend this time here and not learn something from you. Will you just teach me whatever it is that I need to walk away from this trip with? I just want to take a second and stop and, and learn from you. And he said, all right, son. Man, quit. Really, God responded with, all right, son. That's the way God talks? Really? Okay. Looking down and worrying about all these details for a moment. And would you, would you lift your chin? Would you raise your gaze for a moment? And so I did direct revelation. So you asked God a question. God said, all right, cool. Lift your chin. Okay. Just a little bit, and all of a sudden I saw all these beautiful children, these boys and girls just playing, having a great time. And my heart just kind of went out for them, and I was excited about the impact we were having. And he said, no, 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 son, lift your chin a little higher. Raise your gaze a little higher. And, and so I lifted my eyes even higher, and I saw the beautiful scenery that is the nation of... Did you end up lifting your eyes and looking at the stars the way Abraham did when God told him to look at the stars? Are you like Abraham? 80. And, he, and he's just, he just kind of impressed upon my heart, man. Corey, whatever it is that you want to see happen in Haiti, the love that you have for these kids and this nation and your church, the impact that it wants to have, you got to know that I have so much more. Notice he's preaching his direct revelation. He's given us two verses from Luke 5, and now he's preaching a direct revelation and as if it's the word of God. Better pay attention. Add quickly. Get somebody out there to take notes. We need a we need a dictation here, and we need to tack this on to the end of our Bibles. This is a direct revelation from God, very similar to uh, the the revelation that uh, Abraham received when God told him to look up to the stars and see if he can count them. It's just like that. My plans and dreams for the nation of Haiti trump yours by far. So would you just raise your gaze for a moment and catch a glimpse of the big vision that I have? Everybody say that. Raise your gaze. You got to raise your gaze when it comes to a vision. We got to dream big dreams. The Bible is very clear that the dreams and plans God has for us go far beyond what whatever we can even ask or imagine. We have- uh, there we go. Uh, <clears throat> Jeremiah. <laughs> Jer- it's a mis- I'm telling you, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith might end up being named the context episode. 
Uh, Je- is it what Jeremiah twenty nine eleven? Is that what that is? Hang on a second. Jeremiah twenty nine. I think it's Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> so here's the the verse out of context. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for uh, welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Right. Everyone loves quoting this passage, but the problem is, is that they never add the context. And when you add the context, you realize, oh, um, ooh, I'm reading somebody else's mail. <clears throat> Jeremiah 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter of Jeremiah, the prophet, Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's who it was written to. <clears throat> Listen to some of the details. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisah, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, it, the letter, said... <clears throat> Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who was this written to? It wasn't written to you and me. And this this is not a general promise to Christians. These are specific promises and words of comfort given to a very specific group of people. Unless you are this old, this letter wasn't written to you. Okay, you, you're looking at somebody else's mail. Okay, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce. So why is why are they quoting this passage in you know verse five? Make sure you need to build some houses. Okay, plant your gardens. You see, you, you, why are they commanding us to plant gardens? I mean, if they think this is a general promise, there's some general commands here that we need to do. We need to all build some houses and go plant some gardens. Okay. Take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf uh, for for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, visions, uh, for it's a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. I, I would hazard a guess that God, God, the, the, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is not did not actually have a full-blown conversation with uh, Corey there in Haiti. I think this vision, this dream, this uh, direct revelation he had, that wasn't God talking to him, probably something else, either himself or, well, one of the agents of the evil one. Okay, We continue, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you. I will, uh, I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, the exiles, uh, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare, to welfare the exiles, not for evil, to give you exiles a future and a hope. That's the way you would read it, because who is it written to, right? So when you call upon me and come and pray to me, and then I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you. Just put it in context and you realize this isn't a general promise whatsoever here. And young Ricky Martin, in his uh, preaching attempt, 
has misquoted this passage. Typical seeker-driven misquoting of this passage. The rays are gates. We got a dream. Some of us, man, our dreams just aren't big enough. We're like down here. We're down, and we'll talk about that in a second. But God says, man, lift your chin, raise your gaze, dream big. But you know what we have to do? Yeah, nowhere in the Bible does God tell you to raise your gaze or lift your chin and dream big dreams. When we dream big, start small. For every big dream, you got to start small. And what yeah, I know. I've read the greater book, too. You're doing a very good job of aping not only Stephen Furtick, but you're parroting his false theology as well. Nicely done. Love is in the simple story we see this principle lived out. Their dream, their vision was to get Tim to Jesus. We got to go miles and miles and get Tim to the Messiah. We want to see Tim healed. We want to see his entire life changed. They had a big vision. And you know what it started with? Um, Jeff, get your truck. Dude, it's like you're 30. We don't have trucks. You know what I mean? And they're like, all right, Joe, get your wheelbarrow. We got to put Tim in the wheelbarrow. Dude, we're broke. We don't have a wheelbarrow. All right. Somebody got a mat. Anybody got a mat? Like, you know, dude's like, I got a mat. So they get a mat. Notice none of this stuff actually appears in Luke 5, nor does it appear in Mark chapter 2, which is a direct cross reference here. They start small. They get their mat. I got my mat over here. Y'all give a hand for the mat because it's humongous and it's going to take me a second to get it out. He's got a prop. It's a mat. Yay for big mats and illustrations. All right, so there's the mat. So they get the mat, and notice, getting the mat isn't exactly easy, is it? They probably had to go to somebody's house, run to the house. A couple guys had to get it. They had to come and lay it down. Then they had to roll it out. They had to go through all these simple, little, easy steps just to start. They had to get a mat. Everybody say, get a mat. They got to get a mat. Why do they got to get a mat? Because they got to get Tim on the mat in order to start taking some steps in order to get him to Jesus, to see his life change, to see the vision happen. They had to get a mat. They had to start small. So many times when we dream big, we forget that we got to start small. We go, man, I want This passage isn't about dreaming big. I'm about to exegete the passage for you to demonstrate who this passage is really about. It ain't about you. It ain't about me. It's not even about Tim. It's about Jesus. My marriage to be amazing. I want my business to take off. I want to have a huge impact in my church. And nothing happens. Why? Because we don't do nothing. We just have the big dream, the big vision. And God's going, okay, start small. Get your mat. Man, for me, I went through a season of my life, probably the majority of us. Really? How old are you and how long was the season? Like two weeks? You're, do you even shave? If you've been an adult for very long, have gone through this season. For me, it happened right after college. You know what I'm talking about when you like graduate college or you're at that season when you're like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Like, who am I going to marry? Where am I going to live? Where, I just, what, what cause am I going to champion God? Yeah, we're learning a lot about Ricky Martin here, but we're not learning anything about Jesus. Strange, isn't it? it yeah, he's taking a full-blown page from Stephen Furtick and finding a way to take any passage, even ones about Jesus, and make it about himself. This is known as... Narcissus, narcissistic eisegesis, reading yourself into the text. What is the rest of my life going to look like? He put all this pressure. That's just overwhelming. Anybody ever been there? That's just an overwhelming season. I, here's what's really cool. I had a really cool pastor, mentor, and friend that kind of sat me down. And he said, Corey, would you stop putting pressure on the rest of your life and just worry about the next season? God works in seasons, and some of us have put so much pressure on what are we going to do with the rest of our lives. And God's saying, would you just worry about the next season? 
I got your life in my hands. You just worry about the vision for the next season. Somebody needed to hear that today. Just put, just worry about the next season of your life. Really, I don't think anybody needed to hear that because it's false doctrine. And so I started, I started asking God, God, what am I supposed to do for the next season? You know what he said? Go home. I just felt like God told me, go home. Now you got another direct revelation for young Corey here. Understand for me, I'm from Pensacola, Florida. I was born in Louisiana. I'm a Cajun at heart. Mm, give me some gumbo, jambalaya, crawfish estouffee. Oh, man, I just lost some of y'all. Y'all just. And for all of you single women out there, he also happens to be a Scorpio. Hungry, thinking about lunch, rest of service. Seriously, I know I am, but. Man, I, I was born in Louisiana, but I was raised in Pensacola, Florida. Beautiful place. My family's up there. Friends, I love it. And he likes long, romantic walks on the beach. But here's the deal. When I turn 18 years old, out, I'm done. Like, went off to college. Peace. I've been in Pensacola long enough. Every summer, I was, like, touring around the country with a ministry group. Or I was in Africa. Or I was in Central America. I just, no looking back. That, that's the way I was. And so for me, to go back home was failure. It was just failure. I feel like, you know, I just never wanted to, to end up not, I love visiting, but I just never wanted to end up back there. And so for God to tell me to go home, I was like, plan B, like what, what else you got for me? God, like, come on, you know, you are the God of many colors. There are many plans and paths. I'm sure say, no, go home. I was like Jonah, you know, God said, go to Nineveh. I was like, where's my whale? Like, let's not going, not seriously. And so I kept wrestling with God and I was, I was under a contract with this ministry team traveling. And so I just kept, so Corey is just like Abraham. He, God takes him out and tells him to lift his gaze. He's just like Jonah. Wow. He, this guy's a prophet and he gets direct revelation from God. Who needs a Bible? Thank God. What do you have for me? What's that vision for my life? And we were up at Lookout Mountain, Georgia at Covenant College, just a, a beautiful campus. And I had gotten out of a, what does this have to do with Luke five? A worship experience, much like the one we just experienced, where, you know, Jesus was just moving, we're singing, surrendering. By the way, you know God can speak to you during a song? Like, sometimes when we're just singing out biblical truths, I will rise as Christ raised to life. Sometimes that's all you need. If you that, That's the lyric, I will rise. Yeah, who's that song about? <clears throat> just sing out truths. When you hear those things come from your lips and come from your mouth, God just affirms in you, man, that's what you needed today. Some of you don't even need to hear a sermon. You've already sang out what you needed to hear today. And you could just walk out and start living it out right now. I love our worship team in the <laughs> what experience we get to go through in that. I just come out. It's cool. I, yeah, we have a good worship. And that's an applause line. Got it. Team. But I just... I just got done kind of like worshiping and I was like, okay, I just got done listening to you talking about you. I'm going to actually teach this text. If you have your Bible, go to Luke chapter five. If you're not already there, let's take a look at what's really going on here because you'll find out that Corey isn't in this text. Neither are you. And Tim isn't, is he's only, he makes kind of a cameo appearance, but the story is actually about Jesus. Luke chapter five, verse 17. On one of those days, as he, Jesus, was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal. By the way, when you cross-reference this with the Gospel of Mark account, uh, Mark reveals to us that where this took place was none other than the house of Jesus. This is at Jesus' house, okay? So, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed 
a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. Okay? Put this in context. Okay? First century Judea. Okay? We are in Nazareth. This is where this is taking place. This is at Jesus' house. Pharisees are there. The scribes are there. And back in those days, how did good, upstanding Jews get their sins forgiven? Answer, they had to go to Jerusalem with animals, spotless lambs, and, and sacrifice them. It was a bloody mess. Okay? No Jew would ever say to another Jew, absolvite, your sins are forgiven. They would never say anything like that because sins were forgiven only through the shedding of blood, the whole sacrificial system at the temple. That's done in Jerusalem. Okay? So here we have Jesus who the paralytic drops down from the roof, you know, his, his own house. And the first thing out of his mouth is, man, your sins are forgiven. Okay. To any good kosher Jew, Jesus, for the most part, is sounding like a complete blasphemer. That's exactly what's going on. They're thinking, whoa, wait a second. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Okay. Sins are taken care of. They're forgiven in, well, that takes place at the temple. Who are you to forgive sins? Who do you? Who are you making yourself out to be? That's really what's going on here. Now, how do I know that's going on? Because the text tells me. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's what's going on inside of their minds. They are upset. They think Jesus has just blasphemed. Okay? Jesus, when he perceived their thoughts, he answered them. And Mark makes this clear. These thoughts that they had regarding the fact that Jesus was committing blasphemy, these were thoughts that were not voiced out loud. These were thoughts that they were having inside of their heart. And Mark makes a point of making it clear that Jesus knew what they were thinking. Okay? Unlike me, Jesus didn't flunk ESP, and the reason why is because he is God in human flesh. That's kind of the whole punchline that's, that, of this text. So Jesus said, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Now stop there for a second. Jesus asked a question, which is easier to say? It's way easier to say, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because it's not as if when your sins are forgiven, your your skin assumes a, a, a shinier, healthier sheen. It's not like all of a sudden, you know, that, you know, you have rosy cheeks or there's something that we could look at to know that your sins are forgiven, right? There's, there's no change in your demeanor, your appearance or anything of the sort, okay? In other words, it's a lot easier to say your sins are forgiven than to say, get up, take up your mat and walk. And the reason being, because if you say to the person, take up your mat and walk, and he doesn't get up and take his mat and walk, then everybody knows that you're a charlatan, right? So Jesus said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk? 
but that you may know that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them, picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they all glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Here's the punchline of the text. The thing that the Pharisees and scribes were thinking in their heart is, Who can forgive sins but God alone? Answer, well, only God alone can forgive sins. So Jesus says, So that you, can, so that you know that I have the authority to forgive sins, wink, wink, I'm God, take up your mat and go home. This text is all about Jesus in a very bold and real way, revealing who he really is. None other than the Yahweh of the Old Testament in human flesh. That's why he did things in the order that they did, he did them, so that people could look back and go, wow, who is this Jesus? This is an amazing fellow. And they were amazed. They weren't amazed at the people who lowered the guy in the front, you know, the paralytic. They were amazed at the man who can forgive sins and the man who commanded the paralytic to rise and walk. This is who this text is about. It's about Jesus. And by the way, this is good news for us because here's the deal. You may not be a paralytic. You might have your health right now. You might have no problem. You might be a healthy person who exercises on a regular basis, goes to the gym, lifts weights, does cardio and things like that. And you might actually be thin and healthy and good looking, not like me. But if that's the, you know, regardless, okay, if, if that's your, your situation, you have something in common with this paralytic. And that is, is that you have the same problem he has. Not that he's paralyzed, but he needs his sins forgiven. And so do you. You do. And Jesus is the one who forgives sins because he took your sin upon him when he was crucified on the cross. He has already suffered the wrath of God in your place, and he is offering you full and complete pardon and forgiveness of all of your sins. And he's calling you to repent of your wickedness, to repent of your sin, and to trust him and his shed blood for the forgiveness of your sins. Because this text and this miracle that he performed shows us beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive sins because he is who he claimed to be. Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament in human flesh. That's who this passage is about and that's how this passage really applies to you. And I didn't have to insert anything into this text to share that truth with you. It's right there in the text, in black and white, and you don't have to read it in the subtext. But let's see what <clears throat> young Pastor Corey now does with this text. God, man, what am I supposed to do with this next? Give me a vision. Give me a vision for my life. And he said, all right, Corey, go to the point. And the point was there was a place at Lookout Mountain where there was just like a ledge like this. And it was this point that overlooked just the foothills of the mountain. Like there was this beautiful forest that kind of rolled down the mountain. And then it overlooked downtown Chattanooga, which was just like shining and glimmering. And you could see the car. I mean, it was just beautiful. And then there was some foothills and then there was a mountain range. And then there was just a beautiful starry night lit sky. I mean, it was breathtaking. I'd go out there and spend almost every night just talking to God or just soaking it in. 
He said, you want to know what I have for you? Go to the point. I said, all right, I'm going to go. I kid you not. I opened the doors of the auditorium and leave the worship experience. And it was the foggiest night I have ever seen in my life. Like I could not see from me to that stanchion. There was like thousands of youth running around because it was like a youth worship thing. And I was like running into him on the way. It was so foggy. So I was like, all right, you know, maybe God's going to like lift the fog and work some miracle or whatever. And so I go and I sit on the point. I sit on the ledge. Notice again, he's preaching from his life experiences. He's not preaching Luke 5. And I sit there, and I'm looking out, and I say, all right, God, what do you got for me? And he said, this is the vision I have for your life. And I said, fog? <laughs> Seriously? See, I, what I love is sometimes, I mean, prayer, like we talked about earlier, it's just talking to God. And I was just like, Dad, like, Father... Fog, that's what you got for me. Like, and I love it. He just kind of pushed on my heart. Then he said, Corey, you know that beyond this fog, there was a beautiful forest filled with lessons to learn and trials and temptations to walk through. And then, you know, there's a shining, glimmering city full of people to reach and, and foothills to climb and mountaintop. Yeah, I don't think this was um, God. I don't think this was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not the, not the triune God of Scripture. No, I don't think so. I think this was either your imagination or literally um, an agent of the devil. To reach, you know, all that is just beyond this fog. And just because you can't see it doesn't. Mean- yeah, the reason I say that is because the scriptures are about Christ. The Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. You have this really bad habit of pointing us all to you. And you ain't in the Bible. And yet you're telling all of these, you're giving us all these direct revelations as if they're biblical. Yeah, you're deceived. It's not there. And at that moment, at that moment, and people are clapping for this moment, man, that it's cool when you read scripture, when you just spend time in the word of God, whether it's every morning or every night, man, I encourage you to just, yeah, like, why don't you do it like right now? That's what the job of a pastor is supposed to do anyway, right? Read scripture. Cause at that moment, a very common scripture that I had memorized a long time ago as a kid just popped in my mind. Second Corinthians five, seven, we live by faith, not by sight. And he said, Corey, just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. I have a big vision, a big plan, a big dream for your life. But you got to start small. You got to go home, go to Pensacola. And what I learned is a lot of times the last place you want to go is probably the place God's calling you. The last person you want to talk to is sometimes the one that God's calling you to reach out to and talk to. So I had to start small. I had to pick. Yeah, why don't you reach out to me? I'd love to have a conversation with you. I think I can help you my mat just like these guys everybody say get your mat I had to get my mat I had to go to Pensacola and I cannot tell you enough how just amazing it is when you step out in simple steps of obedience and watch the adventure God takes you on because like I said the plans and dreams he has for us go far beyond what we can imagine and so we got some guys here that had a dream that had a vision and they were ready to see that vision come to reality and so they picked up the mat they have tim on the mat they're taking steps and they're probably excited man tim everything's going to change for you today jesus is going to make it happen man you're going to get healed here we go let's go we got faith it's about to happen and then they get outside the home and what happens they face the same thing that every one of us faces if we have a vision worth living out they came into opposition everybody say opposition i love it Vision, everybody's like, vision! Opposition is like, opposition. What? They came into opposition? Who was opposing them? <laughs> the crowd? The crowd wasn't opposing them. They were just there. They were an impediment. There's a difference between in, 
impediments and, and opposition. It's not like they were shouting, at, don't you dare bring that paralytic in here. No, no, no. Seriously. None of us likes opposition. But if it is a vision worth, if it is a vision worth attaining, if it is a vision worth living out, you will face opposition. If it is a dream worth dreaming, you will face difficulties. If you got a vision or a dream and it's smooth sailing, your dream or your vision is not big. Produce one verse that actually says this nonsense. There isn't a single passage in the Bible that says this. Enough. You have got to dream bigger because then you will face opposition and you will learn and your faith will be tested and you will move and push through it. But imagine what it felt like in this moment to be the guys, to be Jeff and Tom and these guys around. And they said, man, we're going to get Tim to Jesus. We're going to see his life change. Everything's going to get better, Tim. We got you. And then they get there and they set him down. And what I love here in verse 19, I want you to read these two words with me again. But finding no way. Everybody say no way. Say no way. You know what no way means? No way. I'll translate that for you. In the Greek, it means no way. It means there was no way. It means it was impossible. There was, it doesn't say they found a difficult maybe possible and he said there's no way no way and can you imagine what it felt like to be those guys carrying tim excited about the life change that he was about to experience and get there and they look at each other and all their feelings aren't revealed in scripture and where does it say they were hoping for life change they wanted their buddy to be healed thinking the same thing What are we going to tell him? You know what I would hate when I was... Well, if they were careful students of God's word, the way you read it, they should have said to young Tim, don't worry, Tim, this is a sign. The fact that there's no way is proof that we have a big vision from God because look at the opposition. This is the step that we should have looked for. That means that we're about to have our breakthrough. And I played a lot of sports, baseball, basketball, football, ran track. I love any type of competition. I am capital C. Yeah, you love talking about yourself is what you love doing. Competitive. If you heard me speak the last time, I said, man, even in an argument, I was going to do whatever it took to win. I mean, I'm still like bent on winning. Praise Jesus. He has humbled me a little bit and I'm not as like crazy. I mean, but if I lost a game like in high school or college, don't talk to me for like 24 hours. I mean, it was just, it was sad, like just super, super competitive. On that note, right now at Church by the Glades, we get super creative and we have like Christmas games going on and the staff's divided up into teams and we're out there inviting and trying to reach this city for Jesus and it's going crazy. And my team is Purple Brave. If you're not on a team, that's right. Get on Purple Brave and we're going to win it. And it kills me to like not to be in like second or third place or whatever. And I'm going to do whatever it takes. To, I'm not going to cheat. I may trip somebody, but I'm not going to cheat. But man, I just, I'm competitive. It's just, but you know what would, what would give me more than anything, man, especially like in a basketball game. I mean, if we just got obliterated by the opponent, like if they beat us like 100 to 30, which praise God never happened. But let's say if they did, you know. What does this have to do with Luke chapter 5? Absolutely nothing. Do you talk just to hear yourself talk? I would still be kind of miserable for a day or two. But you know what I hated more than that? Is when it would be a close game, and after the game, somebody come up and put their arm around me. And they'd be like, man, Corey, you played a good game. You almost had him. <laughs> I, w- 
we're going to throw you across the gym. You, uh, you almost, you know what that said to me? Oh, if you would have tried a little harder, you may have won. If you were a little better, maybe you could have got victory. Man, mm, good try. You're not that good. You stink. Like, it was just like, almost. That word just eeks me. It's just frustrated. Almost. You mean like if I, if I would have just done a little bit, that, that word, almost. Can you imagine these guys when they're sitting there, man, who's going to tell them? Who's going to tell them there's no way? Fine, I'll tell them. And they, and they kneel down next to Tim and they say, dude, yeah, yeah, Tim, you're right. Like that's, that's, that's where Jesus is. He's right there in that house, man. And I know we told you, I know we told you everything was going to change and we were getting you to Jesus. But man, you could, there's just no way. Hey Tim, we almost got you there. Seriously, what's the point of having an inspired and errant Bible if you're not going to actually teach what's in it? Can you imagine that? Almost. Because you see, there's no way it was, a, I mean, that word almost, I think can be a disease in our modern day church. Almost. Man, I got to spend some time up in NYC, up in Manhattan, not too long ago with a church planner up there. Uh, launching into another story about you. You're going to fit right in. You're going to be a spectacularly popular seeker-driven pastor. I see it. The, the, the tea leaves are all in your favor here. You're ju- you, you are as as good of a narcissist as, well, Perry Noble and Stephen Furtick and some of the you know, big league hitters in the movement. I mean, can't wait to be reviewing your sermons on a regular basis. And while I was there, man, I was right in one of the main streets of Manhattan. And, you know, it, like any city, like Fort Lauderdale, South Florida, wherever, man, we are battling a kingdom of darkness. And I just saw a byproduct of that. And it was just a, a drug addict and a prostitute right next to each other. And the thought that went through my mind was, man, somebody probably almost mentored them when they were younger. Somebody probably almost took them under their wing or brought them in their house and shared love with them. Man, I've had the privilege and opportunity of doing some prison ministry. And we have some great people in our church from up in Lake Worth that do some prison ministry on a regular basis. And I've met some kids that have gone through juvie and they've told me story after story of kids that have been through that. You know, the thought that goes through my mind a lot of times when I see the byproduct of these families is, man, somebody almost invited their mommy or daddy to church and saw that family changed by the love and life found in Jesus Christ. Somebody almost did it. And that word can be a disease, almost. You almost extend that invite. You almost love on that person. You almost shake their hand. You almost, but you know what I love? What I absolutely love is Jesus did not almost die on a cross. His blood does not almost cover our sins. He did not almost raise from a grave and he is not almost coming back, but rather Jesus did die on a cross. His blood does cover our sins. He did raise from the grave and he is coming back. Cause you know, at the end of the day, that's nice. So we get a full blown gospel nugget. There it went. Yeah, the, that's our gospel nugget. They fly in and fly out really quick. They don't make as many appearances as they used to, especially in seeker-driven churches. But when they, they they appear, you have to give them credit. I mean, that was a full-blown gospel nugget, an applause line. By the way, just to let you know, we are officially 75% of the way through this sermon. And we, we've got, uh, what, two verses? Two full verses and uh, maybe three. And uh, we haven't even come close to finishing the story yet, but man, we sure have learned a lot about Corey, haven't we?
We do not serve an almost God. You know what kind of God we serve? We serve a more than God. And because God is a more than God, we are a more than people. And what I found in Romans chapter 8 reigns so true today. It says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. We are more. Yeah, um, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. I'm not going to go ahead and put this in context because I'm worn out. I've had to put context around all these false teachers. Go to Romans chapter 8 and read the whole chapter, and you'll understand that he left out, like, the most important stuff from Romans chapter 8 so that he can talk about the Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39, talking about us when the passage is actually about Christ. Than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord, from our ultimate vision, from the change that comes in Jesus. From our ultimate vision, that's not in Romans chapter 8 at all. You just stuck that in there. We do not serve an almost God. We serve a more than God. And because God is a more than God, you are a more than person. And we are not an almost church. We are a more than church. We are a more than church. And what I love... Yeah, you're, you're, you're all kinds of things, aren't you? Yeah, you're a more than, less than, whatever. Who cares what you are? I want to know more about Jesus. Would you please be quiet and start talking about him, please? Right here, as you see a group of people that looked at Tim and you said, nah, man, it's not about, we're not about to almost get him there, man. I told Tim we were getting him to Jesus. I told him things were going to change. Forget that. Forget almost. I know there's no way. Let's find a way. And one of the guys was like, dude, there is no way. We would have to like put a hole in the roof. You're a genius. Go start digging a hole. Pick up your corner. Let's go. Because you know what? Sometimes when you face opposition and there is no way, you got to get a little. They didn't face opposition. There was nobody opposing them. Words have meaning. Creative. You can't keep doing the same thing and expect different results. Some of us have been facing the same opposition over and over and over again, whether it be in a relationship or in your business or maybe even in a calling and trying to live it out. And you keep trying to do the same thing. And like these guys, you just got to get a little creative. And man, here's the deal. It's going to look crazy to some people. These guys were like, dig a hole in the roof. Yeah, we'll pay for it later. We got to get Tim to Jesus. And that's what we got to do in our own lives. God, we got to get creative. You got to do something different sometimes when you face that opposition over and over again. Because you know what? The vision is worth it. Yeah, the vision is worth Yeah, the vision is worth Weird. It's absolutely like mind-boggling. This is almost like a cult that we're dealing with here. They've got their alternate theology and, not, and it makes it impossible for them to actually see what a biblical text really says. They can only see vision and opposition and the things that they've been programmed to see. But none of those things are in these passages. This is getting really creepy. And the most beautiful thing, the most beautiful thing is when a God vision, when you catch it, when you catch that God vision for your life. Uh-huh. Catch, yeah, because apparently this passage is all about you catching a God vision. If you caught a God vision at Church by the Glades, please come see me. We will get you inoculated. For your family, when you come alongside of your church and you join in that vision, and no matter the opposition that comes, you get as creative as you need to get, you finally see that vision come to fruition. Everybody say that word, fruition. It's such a beautiful word. Fruition means the point at which a plan or project 
is Hugh Sappy Music. The Sappy Music, by the way, if you're not familiar with that, the Sappy Music is to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now working his way through the crowd and is ready to do business with you. And all you really have to do is just make a decision and maybe while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, raise your hand and then God the Holy Spirit will float on over and touch your hand, something like that. That's what the Sappy Music's about. Realize it is when the dream becomes a reality. It is when you step into the fulfillment of the vision. Man, fruition is such a blessing. And here we see the fruition of the vision of these guys. So now really quick, seriously, I'm not joking. We are now well over 85% through the sermon. Okay. With just a little bit of time and the sappy music playing, we, we got to quickly get through the other verses in this story. They're not the main point. No, no, this is just, you know, he has to get through them quickly because you, you can't just leave poor Tim lying there on the floor. We have to find out what happens to Tim. But, you know, notice the whole text has been hijacked and has been turned into something about you and you receiving a God vision and facing opposition. And then, you, you know, because the opposition step is important before you can have so that you can creatively think about how to have the fruition. This is a complete botching of this text. In verse 20, it says, and when he, Jesus, saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived the thoughts, he answered them. Yeah, notice how quick through those verses, yeah, he doesn't know what to make of that. Why do you question in your heart? Side note, Jesus cares about your heart. Physical, intellect, that's all great. But if he's got your heart, he knows everything else will change. Some of you in, in, in here today needed to hear that. You've been holding your heart. Yeah, that's not what this passage says at all. You're totally off topic. Back. He wants your heart. He says, why do you question in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise Pick up your bed and go home. In other words, he said, Tim, show him what's up. Show him. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And this is it. When a vision, when a God vision comes to fruition, an amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with all saying. Yeah, nowhere in the text does it say there's a God vision that came to fruition. We, the onlookers, the ones that didn't experience the miracle, we have seen extraordinary things today. Man, when a God vision comes to fruition, and no matter what opposition you... Yeah, um, you are aware, like I pointed out earlier, this text shows us that Jesus is none other than God in human flesh, and your big takeaway is about a God vision that faces opposition coming to fruition. What are you smoking? You get as creative as you need to to see it come to pass. It is nothing short of extraordinary. Yeah, and just because you can deliver that line with a quivering lip and make everybody look like, think that you're about ready to cry tears of the Holy Spirit doesn't make what you're saying true. In our own lives, man, when we can catch a vision for what God wants to do in our marriages, in our families, like I said, with our city, and God knows with this church, we have an amazing vision.
this season we have a vision. And you know what that now we're talking about the vision for your church. This text is about Jesus being God. Can you deal with that? Can you point that out? Vision is to get people to Jesus. Okay, all right. That's a decent thing to do. Get people to Jesus. In order to do that, they need to bypass church by the glades and go find a real church that actually preaches Jesus from texts about Jesus so that people can encounter Jesus because it obviously isn't going to happen there. Vision this Christmas is to bring people to Jesus. Is to bring people to Jesus. And every one of us in this room have a Tim. Raise your hand if you have a Tim, someone that needs to get to Jesus. Everyone has a Tim. Everyone has a Tim. We all have. God bless us, everyone. Someone that needs to get. You know what I love about this too? Is some of you are sitting in this room and you're like, I'm Tim. Man, I just realized that somebody has been putting me on a map for a long time and I finally came today. People have been putting you on a Are you paralyzed? And I'm standing face to face. I'm feeling my heartstrings plucked like Jesus is here. And everything's about to change. And that happens week in and week out at Church by the Glades. Because you know what we're about here? Like I said earlier, Jesus and his word. We're going to lift Jesus high this Christmas season. You better believe it. No, you're not. You don't do it on any given Sunday. What makes me think you're going to actually do it during the Christmas season? You're not doing it in the sermon. This is going to be preached. You've lifted yourself quite high. Gospel is going to be proclaimed. And so you know what we got to do? We got to dream big. We got to dream big for the Tims in our lives. We got to get a vision for them. We have to get a big, huge, honking vision for the Tims in our lives. But you know what we got to do? We got to start small. We got to get a map. Yeah, I don't have a map. Well, like some old towels do. This Christmas season, here's your map. This is your map. Man, at Church by the Glades, we are getting as creative as possible. Purple Christmas? What in the world is that? You talk about creative? It's purple and Christmas. Those don't even go together. You're about to see they go together in an amazing, magnificent way. Man, I cannot wait for you to see what we have planned. Not even just for the Christmas Eve service. We're kicking this series off next weekend. It's about to go off. And like I said, man, if we would just get our Tims, put them on a mat, do whatever it takes. When I say do whatever it takes. Yeah, go get your Tim and put them on a mat. I don't have a mat, nor do I have a Tim, but... Maybe a, I don't know, maybe a bob will do, and maybe I can stick them in a car or on a cart or something. I mean, dude, if you got to give someone a ride, if you got to pay for their gas, if you say, man, I'll take you out to lunch after, man, I will put a hole in the roof to get you to Jesus. I'll do whatever it takes to get you on this mat and get you to Jesus, because I know if you get... Yeah, if you need to get somebody to Jesus, don't take them to church by the glades. They won't find Jesus there. They've hogtied them and... Put him in the back. To Jesus, change will come. Change will come if they get to Jesus. And we're doing, man, and like I said, we got an unlock here at Church by the Glades. Jesus is going to be proclaimed. You ain't got to worry about that. Yeah, when? He hasn't been proclaimed in this sermon. They're going to get introduced to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that they can. No, I seriously doubt that because he has barely even made an appearance during the sermon time. And what I love about this story, too. As it says, because of, Jesus looked up and he said, because of their faith, because of their faith, your sins are forgiven. That's a theological bombshell. We don't No, he didn't actually say it like that. The text says he saw their faith and then said to the man, son, your sins are forgiven. Yeah, you've, you've created a, a, literally a grammatical construction that is not in that text. Time to dig into right now, but it does pose the question, what does our faith do for our friends? 
What does our faith do for our friends? Are we willing to get the mat? Are we willing to do whatever it takes and get as creative as we need to, to get them to Jesus because it's a worthy cause? Yeah, I agree. It's just it's not going to happen at Church by the Glades. If you're going to get them to Jesus, you have to actually take them to a church where Jesus is proclaimed. The most worthy, the biggest vision, the best vision you could ever have. And what I love about this is Jesus one ups them. Like we said earlier, his plans for us go beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. And so before Tim was ever healed, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Man, he healed him and restored him for eternity. And then he said, all right, so you know that I'm legit. Show him what's up, Tim. And Tim, his bones straightened, his muscles strengthened, and he got up and he picked up his own mat and he walked it. You know what I love about that? His Tim said, this mat that you brought in here with me, I'm not leaving it. I'm picking it back up. And if I have to, I'm going to use it. Yeah, Tim doesn't actually have a speaking line in this uh, story. Um, He was told by Jesus to pick up his mat and walk home. And he did. The same mat to get somebody to the same Jesus that just changed me. Because when Jesus changes you, the responsibility then lies on you to go and get your mat and get somebody on a mat and bring in the Jesus. And then you and them get the mats and you go back out with two mats and you take them and you get people to Jesus. And that is how the kingdom of God works. It is a beautiful thing to be a part of. And man, this Christmas season here at Church by the Glades, we have a huge vision. We don't want to see this auditorium filled once. Man, there's a few empty seats up in there. No, they, they, they have a huge vision. Uh-oh, that means they were, they, I wonder if they went through the opposition phase. Top. My prayer, our prayer is to see those seats. You know, if they didn't have enough opposition, then it probably wasn't a big enough vision. That's kind of scary. Filled with Tim's. Not once, not twice, not three times, as many times as God will let us. And what's so cool is when we get on board with a God vision, he does more than we could even ask or imagine you are. Yeah, you got to get on board the God vision train. A special place and a special time. And God's going to do something amazing this Christmas season. And I cannot wait to see how he uses me, how he uses you, how he uses each and every one of us to grow and advance the kingdom of light, change this city, change South Florida, and change this world because we get to be a part of a movement of God. It's so cool. It's so cool when a group of people care enough about a Tim to bring him to Jesus, guys. Man, I'm excited. I'm excited about what God's going to do through each and every one of you. And if you will, just let me pray for you today. Yeah, no, you don't get to do that. Wow. That was absolutely frightening. Um, Yeah, that's what passes for preaching today. And uh, don't worry, that young Corey, I mean, he has literally everything that he needs to be a very, very successful, seeker-driven megachurch pastor. Unfortunately, he has no ability whatsoever to rightly handle God's word, and he really does a fine job of preaching himself and the direct revelations that he's had. Oh, he's going to do really well as an ear, you know, tickling, ear scratching teacher who doesn't abide by sound doctrine and doesn't know how to rightly handle God's word. But he will be very successful, and don't worry, he'll point to his big vision and the numbers that you know, number of people that flock to hear him preach, and you know, the little girls who will fawn all over him like Ricky Martin. And, uh, and, you know, and as proof that, uh, that what he's doing is from God and well, you can tell by what he preached himself that none of this was from God. He doesn't understand like even the rudimentary basics of the historic Christian faith, nor does he understand that Christianity and the Bible is about Christ, not him. Sad, sad. It's really sad that he's going to be really successful 
at teaching false doctrine. He's got a good start there at Church by the Glades. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>